everybody. Welcome back to another episode of Nicky Manny's Infinite Podcast. This is not the voice you're used to hearing at the start of the show. It's not Manny. This is Nick. I kicked Manny off the show. He's gone. He's never coming back. Uh, that's not the case. Uh, he's he's taken a week off from this episode, mainly because of the theme of the episode, which I'll get into in a minute. Um, I'm going to return the favor because he's got an episode planned with some people next month that I'm not going to be on either. So it's a little trade off that we're both having. Uh, but I brought on a guest for this episode. It's not just me, don't worry. And the guest, you may have heard a couple times on the show, Cat from Bobcat. Well, we got the other half of the coin. We've got Bob from Bobcat, Bobby Mitchell. Bobby, what's up? Hey, Nick, how's it going? It's the first time I've actually uh, spoken to you in person. Well, actually, not in person, but, you yeah. know, speaking well, not, instead of not typing. in person, but yeah. 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 We've never directly spoken to each other before before this and before our uh, tech issues that we just had for the last 20 minutes. Yeah. That's Didn't even get always... to say hello before we had tech issues. Yeah, it started up and Nick sounded like a robot, so that was always fun. <laughs> and now, even though we can hear each other fine, Bobby sounds like he's on helium for me, which you guys won't end up hearing in the final cut of the episode. So it's a whole thing, but we're here, we're talking, and we're going to talk about James Bond today. That's our that's our big plan for the episode. Uh, I have something else I want to get into first before we start talking about Bond. Uh, but first, Bobby, uh, we've had Kat tell us about herself. Can you tell us a bit about yourself and the stuff that you're doing? Yeah, I'm Bobby from, I'm in Michigan, uh, a little far, far away from you, um, and I mm-hmm. do a lot of music stuff with Cat, so it started on here uh, with Bobcat. We just kind of, you know, we, we mentioned, Cat mentioned she might want to do a duet, and we did one, and then we're like, let's just keep making songs, um, and that's been a lot of fun. And then I also am on a podcast of my own with uh, my brother and a couple of friends, and it's called Movie Change Up, uh, and we, it's like a modified kind of movie fights it's like a mixture of like movie fights and um i don't know like a, it's like a pitch show so we take movies and uh, we get rules that we have to use like one must be set in the mcu or you must you know be directed by a tarantino movie you have a list of movies and you have to use those rules and pitch your own ver- like a re- rebooted version of it so i haven't been on it in a little while because i've been busy but uh um, that's always fun to do when we're able to actually record it um but yeah that's kind of what i've got going on yeah, I feel like we've all been busy. Like me and Manny, especially, we're do- we were doing this weekly for a little while, and then he got swamped with school, I got swamped with work, and now we try and get it out every couple weeks if we can. Uh, adulthood is uh, shitty. That's that- that's the long and short of it. Oh, yeah. uh, you get busy, life gets hectic, and you-, you try and make the time to do the fun stuff like this when you can. So that's what we're here for. Yeah, for sure. All right. So the first thing I want to talk about, other than James Bond, we had Elena on last episode. And one thing I wanted to talk about with them, they're one of the people I can bond with this over a little bit that Manny isn't interested in as much, is football, specifically the NFL. And Atlanta mm. and I were going to bond over our woes. They are a Seahawks fan, and the Seahawks mm. are having some struggles right now with Russell Wilson going down. I'm a Chiefs fan, and the last few years or so, I'm not used to struggling. Uh, we've been the best team in the AFC for probably three years running. Uh, but they're having some struggles to start the season off. And... It put things in perspective for me when I realized uh, which team you were a fan of. Yeah. I'm sorry to say. It could be worse. I mean, as you can, as I said in the beginning, I'm from Michigan, so my team happens to be the struggling, always struggling Detroit Lions. Um, (laughs) Yeah, it's, you know what, it's a, it's a frustrating fandom for sure, but, you know, I'm at a point this year where it's kind of just, I knew it was going to be bad and it's just patience and seeing some improvement. So this year's not too bad, but when we had Stafford and we like, okay, this is our quarterback, you know, and we were still struggling or would make the playoffs and lose right away. Like, you know, that was, that was definitely more frustrating than it is right now where I just know it's bad. 
yeah, I, I imagine. I don't I don't mean to rub it in or anything. I do make jokes in our Discord sometimes that kind of seem like rubbing it in. But legitimately, I do imagine that it has to hurt a little bit seeing him go to the Rams and immediately fit like a glove and succeed. Well, it's weird because I actually like I love Stafford. I'm not one of the there, like there are people in Detroit who blame some stuff on him for not winning, but it was definitely not his fault. He's a really good quarterback. He may mm-hmm. not be Mahomes, but he's he's really good. So put him with Sean McVay. I mean, that's a match made in heaven. So I'm not surprised. It feels like the Lions might have been holding Stafford back and it feels like Jared Goff might have been holding the Rams back. And now they're on a team that fits both their skill sets more. But unfortunately, what one of those teams uh, is better than the other. Yeah, Goff. It's, or how, he struggled. I, don't know, I don't know if fits their skill sets is the right word, but a well, more fitting team for for who they are. Yeah, for, for lack, sure. Uh, I mean, for lack of a better terminology. Yeah, I mean, Goff is. Yeah, he struggled. And he just doesn't, you know, he's turning the ball over, but we have no receivers. So I don't blame him for not being amazing right now, but I don't think he's a, he's yeah. a future either. So he's just kind of here until no. we can get someone in the draft and well, we'll see. It's always the, you have to get the quarterback. It just sucks that that's a lot of money being paid to a stopgap right now. That's his contract is one of the worst of all time, I think. Yeah, and that's why we got an extra first round pick in that trade was to take on that contract. So yeah, I understand it. I knew yeah. when we made that trade and when we signed Campbell or so Dan Campbell, our coach and um, our GM, to uh, six year and five year deals. Like they're expecting a long rebuild, which is fine. I mean, sometimes sometimes rebuilds take a long time. I have I kind of felt that way in baseball. Like I'm a Royals fan, being from KC, and it, the Royals have been bad for all but three years of my entire like literally my entire life. They've, they went they made the playoffs twice in 2014-2015, and uh, they had a barely had a winning record in 2013. Other than that, they've had a losing record every year of my entire life, and all the way dating back to 85 when they were in the World Series. But like yeah. 09, 2010, 2011, you started seeing some of those players come in, and it was clear that they had a plan and they were rebuilding, and it ended up working out in that, that two-year window that they had. So I've been through some rebuilds as a sports fan, and it can be a little bit painful, and sometimes, not always, but sometimes it, it's rewarding on the other end. I have no idea if that's what's in store for the Lions. I guess only time can tell there. Yeah. History is not on the Lions side, but I, I can, you know, <laughs> I can sympathize yeah. with you a little bit where you have a good team that's suddenly maybe struggling a little bit because... With the Tigers, um, when I was real young, they were bad. And then most of my like life watching them, you know, as a teenager on, they were very good and were contending. They never won. Yeah. But with Verlander and Cabrera and that all you know, all the different versions of that team, you know, it was always fun to mm-hmm. watch the Tigers. And then all of a sudden, like all those contracts were done, They're, all the players are older, trading them all, and you know, now it's like I haven't watched a like it, it's finally getting exciting again this year because I got some young pieces that are coming up. But you mm-hmm. know, it's, it's it's tough to see a good team that you watch all the time kind of fall down some. Um, with the Chiefs this year, it's been kind of frustrating because like they the big problem they had in the Super Bowl when they went up against the Bucks defense was that offensive line, which had been depleted by injuries and pe- uh, people staying home for uh, during COVID that season. Uh, just the offensive line was depleted by the time they got to the Super Bowl, so they overhauled that in the offseason. They addressed the main pressing issue. Uh, but it feels like they're right back to that 2018 team where it was all reliant on that offense and the defense just couldn't stop anything to save their life. And we're back to that this year. But the only difference this year is that we've got about three or four big wasteful contracts on that defense of guys that are either not producing, always injured or both. And it's it's excruciating because our offense is still, even with all the turnovers that they're committing right now, they're still producing at a ridiculously high level. And that's the frustrating part is that 
this team is just barely like barely away from being the best team in the league. And I think at a certain point in the season, I think they'll probably figure it out again. But it's frustrating how close they are, because realistically, they should be five and one right now. The only game that they got like soundly defeated in was that Buffalo game a couple weeks ago. Uh, but the the Baltimore game they lost was yeah. one possession and they would have won. They would have kicked the winning field goal. They were in range except for that fumble at the end. Uh, the Chargers game was also one possession as well. So it's like I'm frustrated. I'm not hitting the panic button on this team yet, but they need to start getting their shit together, especially on defense and beating teams that are more competitive with them because they've beaten the Browns who are always hit and miss. They've beaten the Eagles who are OK, but Overall, the NFC East is not up to, is not the level of competition that the Chiefs are going to be facing in the playoffs, and they've they've beaten the Eagles no. and and Washington. They're beating the teams they're supposed to beat, but they're not beating the teams that are more competitive with them, like they were in 2018, 19, and 20. And that's the concerning part. But I I still yeah, think it's early on. Sure. They'll they'll get it together. They might need to take a couple more losses to get it together, and they might end up being a wild card team in the end. But I hope and I feel like they are going to start putting the pieces together. Yeah, I, I think so. I mean, with, between Andy Reid and Mahomes and that offense, like they'll they'll definitely win games. And I, I don't think there's a chance. I mean, there's always a chance, but I don't think they're going to miss the playoffs. Um, no, I think, you know, that division might be closer than it's been in the past few years. Uh, but, you know, if they can just improve a little bit on defense, they'll be just fine. Um, but it is weird to see him struggle so much on defense when they had kind of you know, that was a focus. It seemed like was to improve that defense from a few years ago. Um, yeah. and they did. And then now it's just back to, you know, back to giving up a ton of points. And it's, I don't know if it's more scheme or like you said, the players not really producing, but something's wrong. It's a bit of both. And I it, think you know. like there's, there's a lot of blown coverages in particular that I'm seeing. And I'm like, that's gotta be a scheme issue. I know players like Dan Sorensen, who the chiefs fandom loves to make fun of. And I do too. Players like him. It's like, yeah, I think a lot of that's on him. But the amount of blown coverages that we're seeing has got to be a bit of a scheme issue, I think. And I'm not like a football expert or anything, but I feel like when those mistakes are happening and they weren't happening last year or the year before, especially not the year before, I feel like that's that's got to be a scheme issue. I mean, we do have players that are hurt, like I said, like Frank Clark and Chris Jones are kind of off and on, which is frustrating. And even when they're on, they're not really producing that much anyway. But yeah, it just feels like there's no there's no consistency on that defense right now. And they've got to address that in some way. Yeah, definitely. If you want to see a team that had major scheme issues, just watch the Lions. Any tape in the last, <laughs> you know, few years with Matt Patricia, uh, that scheme was the worst defense I've ever seen. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. It didn't help that they played Rodgers twice a year. I was glad that I had Rodgers on my fantasy team yeah. last year. Yeah, it looked promising that he wasn't going to be in the division <laughs> going into the year, and then uh, now yeah. he's back and dominating. But it's probably his last yeah. run in Green Bay. But we're I not so. really going to be contending anytime soon. So. It might yeah. be if Minnesota keeps, you know, cousins, because that seems to be a relationship that's pretty rocky, um, mm -hmm. then I think they're kind of the next ones up because Fields is going to take some time. Yeah. Um, so, yeah, might be Minnesota's game division in the next two years. Yeah, I almost said I think it's the Bears to lose at that point, but Fields has to come along. I don't I feel like and I haven't watched any other games specifically, but just seeing sort of the lack of production that he's kind of had so far. I feel like that he needs a different scheme to work with. I feel like an offense designed for Andy Dalton is not the way to make Justin Fields succeed. Uh, so I think they need to address that probably in the offseason. Yeah, I don't think Nagy's I mean, I know he came from Andy Reid and all that, and he should be a good offensive coach, but he's he doesn't seem to put it together other than Trubisky's like first year uh, when he was there, but which um, seems seems like an anomaly looking back now. 
Yeah. Oh, for sure. But it's weird because <laughs> don't, don't know what was going on. Yeah, Fields definitely needs some work, but they're not helping him with the scheme. But he's missing, you know, reads. Uh, just watching those games, like the, there's a lot of open. Mm-hmm open receivers that he's just not confident in throwing yet. So he'll get there. I'm sure he's a talented yeah. quarterback, but, um, mm-hmm. you know, they, they got to try to use his legs and they're not. So I think they'll turn it around, like figure it out at least a little bit of how to move the ball with him. But I don't know if that's going to turn into anything soon for them. Yeah. It might take, might take a couple of years. I think in the interim, I mean, depending on how Jordan love does, assumes that's assuming that's who the Packers go with. It might, it might be theirs right. to lose. It might be the Vikings to lose. Sort of like seeing the AFC East after Brady left. I'm interested in seeing what the NFC North looks like after Rodgers finally leaves. Because it's been his division pretty much since he got there. Obviously, there's been a couple of years that he didn't oh. that they didn't win the division. But by and large, that's been his division. Oh, yeah. 100%. I mean, he's been dominant. I mean, the Green Bay's been dominant, but it seems like it's mostly him, mm-hmm. you know, getting the job done for him. So, uh yeah, it'll be very interesting to see because I don't I you know, I, I think and it also is going to change not only the NFC North, but whatever division he goes to next, yeah. it'll be like Brady going to Tampa or anything like that. Mm-hmm. And if he goes to Denver or, you know, Pittsburgh or whatever, and all of a sudden it's like, OK, well, now we have a whole new uh, look and contender that wasn't there last year, which doesn't happen often. Quarterbacks other than this past year, they don't change teams. Yeah. Star quarterbacks like this. And now then all of a sudden. Yeah, this offseason and then the season before with Brady, it's like, it's crazy. And like this offseason, even urban acquisitions, you have stuff like Deshaun Watson not playing with with the all the legal issues that he's having. So that's a that's a big quarterback in the league that's just not playing. And on the day of recording, we're seeing rumors about uh, trades that might be made for Tua. And I saw Washington, apparently that got shut down as like a possible destination for him. Um, I think Denver is another one that I saw. And I feel like that's a lateral yep. move at best going from Bridgewater or Drew Locke to, to Tua. But it's yeah, that's I mean, we're in the season and we're still seeing flux in terms of quarterbacks in the league, even after the crazy offseason that we had. Yeah, it's it's insane. I mean, yeah, it, it, it's frustrating. And as a Lions fan, it's frustrating to see a lot of this with quarterbacks because um, we had the chance to take Herbert or I guess Tua and we took uh, a cornerback, you know, and yeah. now he's out for the year and he hasn't been good. <laughs> um, uh. So, you know, that was our. Our owner basically said you need to make the playoffs or you're fired and they're not going to take a rookie quarterback at that point. So she kind of forced the hand and that didn't work. Yeah, it's rough. I I feel for you. I I went through some bad years as a Chiefs fan. I would say like 2007 to 2012, I guess. 2013 is when they got Alex Smith and they turned it around. Those years were rough. We had one year where we made the playoffs with Castle, but those were some rough seasons to get through. Like it felt yeah, legit no, hopeless bet. that Brody Croyle was our starting quarterback one year. It was bad. I don't want to talk about it yeah. anymore. <laughs> I forgot that happened. <laughs> yeah, That's so brutal. so did the rest of the world. I, I didn't I didn't forget. Yep. Oh God. Okay. I think we've sufficiently talked about the NFL. I was about to say the same thing. We don't want to lose lose your audience here with uh, just uh, NFL yeah. talk. Our audience is all over the place, dude. I have no idea what the vast majority of our audience is interested yeah. in at this point. Me and May just say fuck it and talk about whatever. Yeah, well, it was you, funny. We'll we saw cat. Yeah, if we talk video yeah, games, we we'll lose cat. If we lose, if we yeah, we talk, talk video games, we we'll lose you know. cat. 
We talk musicals. We'll lose my best friend, who's pretty much just into movies. Uh, he listens to it because he loves me. Uh, but but he turned it off uh, during the In the Heights talk that we had. And I'm sure on the episode that's uh, as of this recording, it's going to drop probably tomorrow. I'm sure our Bachelor episode, especially because I'm adding time codes now, I'm sure he's going to stop listening once we get to that. And yeah, it's just like, it's fun. All right. So we talked about the NFL. That was the main non-Bond thing that I wanted to talk about because, yes, the theme of this episode is James Bond. Uh, you're a pretty big Bond fan. We've talked about it a little bit. I've talked about it the last couple episodes of the show. Uh, last episode with Elena, we specifically talked about Die Another Day because that's that's a movie that they oh, have God. a lot of fondness for, <laughs> which we can get into that a little bit later. Yeah. Um, yeah, before we do that, um, I, I, I'm not sure if I've told my entire Bond story, but I, because again, we haven't talked to each other uh, directly before this recording. I want to hear your Bond story. So kind of how you how you became a fan. Like, I guess, what did you grow up with? Because I assume that's probably factoring into your fandom and just everything like that. Yeah, for sure. So um, my dad is a really big Bond fan. So I don't know what came first because so I was born in 1990. So I was prime mm-hmm. age for golden eye when that came out i mean not prime yeah. prime because that came out in 97 or, or so so you know but i was still 95. playing it then or 95 so yeah, yeah I probably the, didn't the game play was 97 after that but yeah exactly golden eye the game that's what i mean and that so the the game was uh what i played a ton growing up like it was mm-hmm. that's what really got me into the bond like all the characters um, Pierce Brosnan became like, that is the look that I knew of bond, yeah. um, you know, on that cartridge. And, um, so I don't know what came first playing that game or my dad showing me the old movies. Um, but it was kind of around the same time. So I grew up kind of watching it as a kid. Uh, my dad loved specifically live and let die was his favorite mm-hmm. one. Um, okay. a lot of that for me, like, I know that like, that's one I have a lot of fondness for, even though looking back on it, it's kind of, it's kind of goofy. Um, yeah. but I still love Jaws. I still love the song. That's one of my favorite Bond songs. Jaws is not in Live and Let Die though. Oh, um, yeah, yeah, yeah. Sorry. Live and Let Die is like, it's a silly movie that I, that I like just because yeah. it's one that my dad liked. So I like knew it as that was a Bond movie that I saw when I was younger and, and have a connection to, uh, and the song itself. But so the, really it was the game GoldenEye that I played forever on the N64 uh-huh. Uh, that made me want to go back and watch like all the movies. Uh, my dad had a bunch of them, so we watched all the old Connery movies, a, a bunch of the Roger Moores. I think when I was younger, I didn't see like A View to a Kill, um, because that's just <laughs> I think he just knew that one was bad, and I never saw it. Yeah. Uh, and it actually and it actually took me a while to even watch Goldeneye, which I was I loved the game, but um, hmm. I think my parents thought it was a little too, like too dark, you know, compared to the old ones. Yeah. Um, when it came out, which looking back on it now is odd because it's nowhere near the darkest bond movie at this no. point. But at the time, it, at the time it was, you know, other than the Dalton movies, yeah. pretty, you know, a little bit more, more brutal. That's really what it was is my dad and the video game is how it kind of got me into it. My brother and I, I have two younger brothers, uh, Johnny, my brother, who's on the podcast with me, uh, is probably a bigger fan than I am. Mm-hmm. Like we were both big fans, but I think he kept up with it and rewatches them like all the time. But yeah, it's just been like a long running. I see all the movies. Daniel Craig has been my favorite Bond, uh, the actual actor okay. in in the role. So yeah, you know. But Pierce Brosnan is the look that I always picture. So it's a weird kind of thing. But when I picture Bond, is Pierce Brosnan. But my favorite actor in the role has been Daniel Craig. Yeah, I think I'm kind of uh, not to spoil what we're going to talk about later, but I think I'm kind of with you on both of those fronts. Pierce Brosnan's like. Uh, 
if if you like were to build a bond from the ground up he's got the look of bond and he can like sell physicality enough i think for the type of character that bond generally is they obviously turned it a little bit darker with daniel craig uh but like in terms of just the prototypical bond if you hear the character in the movies described to you i think pierce brosnan fits that perfectly and i think daniel craig is probably my favorite bond in the role uh which i've it took me a long time to grow into that opinion because like i love a couple of his movies uh, I don't love all of his movies, which we'll get into, um, but I uh, I guess I can segue this into my Bond story, and then we'll talk about this this part a little bit later. Um, but my Bond story is that I had never seen any of them until I watched them all for the first time about five years ago, in order from Dr. No all the way through to Spectre at the time, which was the most recent back then. Um, it was just something that my, my parents never cared for. My dad, I think he's seen probably most of them, but he's never like been a big fan. It wasn't something he ever wanted to show to me. I knew pretty much nothing about the series. My uncle owns a, cu- a couple of the DVDs. I know he owned Die Another Day, and I think he bought Quantum of Solace, I think, uh, which I saw around okay. the house and stuff like that. Um, so like I had some awareness of what it was but it had never factored into my life or anything. And for whatever reason, when Spectre came out, I just, for whatever reason, I think it might have been Christoph Waltz. I was at the height of my, uh, I was 17 at the time, and I was getting into movies big time. So I was in the height of my Tarantino fandom, and I was super into Christoph Christoph Waltz, and I think that's probably what drew me to Spectre. But I thought, you know what? I have this opportunity to watch watch the series in the order that it came out in, so I don't get any preconceived notions about what the series is to me. Because I think a lot of kids my age, because I'm I was born in '98, so people my age have grown up pretty much exclusively with Daniel Craig. That uh, we we I was four years old when Die Another Day came out, so I don't remember that movie yeah. coming out or anything. So I feel like people in my age group, a little bit and a little bit, a couple years either direction of me, they pretty much only see Daniel Craig. That's the bond that they know. And I thought even if there's a chance that that's how I would have ended up feeling about Craig anyway, which I think it kind of is now. I wanted to watch the series in order so I could get a proper feel for the series and how it evolved. So uh, with graduation money uh, in 2016, when I graduated from high school, I bought the big Blu-ray box set and watched them all in order for uh, mm-hmm. for the first time. The first of two Bond marathons that I've done so far in my life, I just did uh, my second one and it, it dragged a little bit in, in some spots. Some of them I really enjoyed. My opinions mm-hmm. have changed a lot on a lot of those movies from the first time I saw them, uh, which which has been fun. I'd be curious to do a rewatch myself just because there are a lot of them that I haven't seen in a while. It's like I just mm-hmm. know... Like, like I, you know, even mixed up what Jaws was in because I was because I haven't seen it in so long. But like, I, I have more memories of like fondness of certain movies and, and you know, otherwise for some others. But I, I do want to go back and rewatch it like you did at some point. Like, I need that box set or some way to watch them all um, yeah. and just see what my updated opinions are, because it's more of like I'm a fan of Bond, but it's been a long time, you know, since I've seen most of the pre Pierce Brosnan movies. Uh, I walked away from that first uh, marathon in 2016 feeling that Connery was the best Bond. I I just I loved him in the role, even though I didn't like some of his movies. I just like again, maybe it's because that was the first I saw. But like, that's what established the character to me fully in my head was this is what Bond should be. He's suave. He's cool and all that. And he's got the wit yep. and, and everything like that. Yeah. 
yeah, like he's just I don't think he looks the part to the degree that Brosnan does necessarily. But obviously, like he was winning Sexiest Man Alive well into the 1980s when he was bald and in his 50s and all that. Clearly, he worked yeah. for people, especially back in the 60s. But yeah, I just I, I loved him in that role. Looking back uh, with this past marathon, I don't feel necessarily the same way. We can get into that. But I think we've gone okay. over general general thoughts. Uh, so I think we can go through the entire series now. Uh, if you want, we can start all the way back with Dr. No in 1962. How do you feel about it? I, I really like this one. I think it really sets kind of the precedent of Sean Connery as Bond and kind of what mm-hmm. he would be. I, it's one that I it's it's on TV a decent amount. They they yeah. show it and I, I catch scenes um, here and there. But like Honey Rider, like, is a, <laughs> you know, and all that, like there's some there's definitely, you know, they they um, introduce Spectre right away, like as, as part of it. And yeah, that surprised um, me back in the day. I didn't yeah. realize that was a thing from the very first movie. Yeah, I mean, Spectre, you know, it, it's been the long-running big organization. Like, it is the Empire or whatever, you know, whatever you want to yeah. call it, of the Bond series. But there's definitely breaks in it where they don't go back to it, and then there's big rights issues. But yeah, Dr. Yeah. No, right away, uh, I think they wanted to use kind of the big villain organization from, you know, the Ian Fleming novels and, and go from there. But um, I, I generally really like Dr. No. I think it's a good starting point yeah. for the series, even though, like, it's not one that I revisit all the time. Mm-hmm. You know, like out of anything that I would revisit, it's not one that I would think like, oh, I'm going to put on Dr. No, but it, it's on enough that I see scenes and I think it's a good, good one. And I, I generally like most of the um, Sean Connery movies. There are a couple that are, you know, not so good, especially looking back on them. But yeah, I, for a while, like you, Sean Connery was my favorite Bond, mm-hmm. even with Pierce, Net, Pierce Brosnan being the look when I grew up, like Sean Connery was, he was cool. Like he's Bond and, and this kind of established that. Yeah. Yeah, I, I enjoy Dr. No. It's like the definition of solid to me is Dr. No. Yep. Like, I wouldn't call it great, It's but it's definitely good. It's firmly in good territory. And I find it to be one of the more watchable ones in the series because I think the first half especially, I would say probably up until the first 90 minutes or so, until they get to the island where uh, his mm-hmm. Dr. No's lair is, I think it's just like a solid espionage investigation movie. Like, it feels more straightforward than obviously the Bond series would get. It would obviously get ridiculous and and some of the plots would get crazy. This just feels like a fairly straightforward espionage movie. And I appreciate that. Like, there's just little things like uh, you've got Felix from the CIA. He's like spying on Bond and there's someone who infiltrates Bond, becomes his cab driver. And Bond has to suss out that, that this guy is uh, working for someone else. Like you get it's yeah. not it's not groundbreaking or anything. It might have been a bit more groundbreaking in 1962, but like it's basic, decent espionage stuff. And I really like that as- aspect yeah. of it. I've, I especially like, I think the movie drags a little bit in the last half hour, but I especially like the scene near the end where he's actually talking to Dr. No, because I feel like that's the main chance that Connor gets to actually flex some acting chops beyond just what you would expect for a Bond to be. Like it actually feels like a good scene with good back and forth between two good actors. And you get uh, obviously Spectre established in that big dinner scene, but that yep, scene is you, sure. that scene's usually what stands out to me. And the very ending, like the final action scene, is kind of it's, it's kind of bad. It's yeah, it's not great. That's the there's one. There's like, like there's like no score to it either, if I no, recall. It's just it feels much. really weird. I want to say this is before movies became movies, but this is before modern sensibilities in movies had kicked in. So action scenes, especially, they didn't feel like they knew what how to really format an action scene. No, it was just we. We want this action to happen and it's like they're and but they don't really know how to make it seem exciting or yeah cut cut around anything. It's just kind of happening in front of you with like you said, not much 
score or anything to intensify it. And it's just like, it, it, it makes it just seem bland, like, you know, especially compared to now, like back then, I don't know really what it was like, uh, when that, like when people saw it at the time, but looking back, it's like, uh, that just doesn't really hold up as a, as a modern, like as modern filmmaking no. action scene at all, like for what we think of it. I feel like they honestly didn't really get the hang of how to do action until maybe the Dalton movies. Cause Roger Moore, yeah. especially like he's, I'll get to him later, but physically he's never embodied bond to me, especially as he got older. Like I never bought him as a guy who could do all the fighting. And I feel like the movies never really put a, too much focus on that until probably the Dalton and then uh, the Dalton movies. And then especially in golden eye, they actually started putting a focus more on the action and the choreography. Yeah, they were definitely more of spy. It was like, it's a spy movie with kind of like more fun gadgets and there's action, but the focus isn't the action. It's Bond's character and the suaveness and the, the ladies and, and yeah. everything. And, and the big villain with the, the plot in like some weird twerk, you know, weird thing about them. And that's kind of mm -hmm. what the Bond movies were until, yeah, probably till Dalton. Then they yeah. started to get more into action. Yeah, I think honestly, Dalton's uh, insistence on doing a lot of his stunt work is probably what actually made them take that shift with the character. Yeah, yeah, and we'll get to that. Yeah, we'll get to him later. We're kind of skipping ahead, but yeah, you know, a we, lot of a lot of these ones that we talk to talk about right now is going to be like I have memories that I really like this one for the most part, yeah. other than like I like you know Sean Connery and I like these certain aspects, but yeah. Okay, so we can move on to the next one uh, from Russia with Love from, I believe, the very next year in 1963. Yeah. And I don't know. yearly for a while. Very yeah, yeah, they, yeah, uh, up until uh, some of the Roger Moore ones, uh, they, yep. they were, they were pretty much annual. Um, but from Russia with Love, I, when I watched it for the first time, I think I rewatched it as well uh, in, in the five years between. Uh, but I remember liking it, but not loving it. But I can say this time that I love from Russia with Love on this past rewatch. That, like I talk about the espionage stuff that I liked in Doctor No, this movie doubles down on that, and uh, it's still got some of the Bond silliness, but it's much more of an espionage, almost a drama in some places, and I really appreciate that. And I love yeah. the whole sequence on the train. Just confined action and tension is just it takes place perfectly in, in that big train sequence, and I think uh, Robert Shaw as Red Grant is a great foil for Bond in that movie in particular. Yeah, I think this is. It goes back and forth between this and another one, but I think this is my favorite Sean Connery movie. It's mine. Um, I'll, I'll it's, spoil. I'll it, spoil the I, next one, but this is this yeah. is mine for for me. Right, and you probably know which one it's going back and forth with. But I I, yes. I, I love this movie. It's it's definitely. I think it kind of nails Bond a little bit more than Doctor No. Like they just kind of introduced him in Doctor No, and then they kind of amped it up. And it yeah. and you know, what Bond is known for is being very episodic in the movies. And yes. up until Daniel Craig, uh, there was, it was really no to very little connection between the movies, but this one mm -hmm. actually has a plot that they are actually, you know, Spectre is avenging, you know, what Bond did in the first movie to Dr. No. Yeah. So it at least connects in some way. So it's kind of a continual story uh, instead of later on where it just kind of doesn't acknowledge anything that happened in the past. So I, I think it builds on Dr. No. Um, and kind of is a little bit what they were trying to do with Casino Royale and Quantum mm -hmm. of Solace, but not quite as connected. Yeah, yeah, I like it's like it's like a basic through line of of those two movies to each other, and I think Sylvia Trench pops back up in in this yeah. one, uh, who we get the his first Bond James Bond introduction is with her, and then she pops up again in this movie, and I was I thought it was weird that she never popped up again because it feels like it could. 
I guess I guess thinking about it now, it almost feels like it steps on the th- the uh, the money penny stuff that they always do. The the will they yeah. won't they? Because it feels like that's kind of the same thing that they would were doing with Sylvia. So I guess I'm kind of glad they went away from that because it would have been redundant. But it did feel weird that they brought her back at all just to never bring her back again. Yeah, that was, I think. I mean, I think they were made. I don't know if they knew what they were necessarily going to do with the Bond franchise at that point. Yeah, I'm so sure they, they didn't. Just, you know, they were they were probably thinking like, oh, all of these are going to be a connected thing. And then when they realized they could just make them year after year, they're like, well, we can't re- really do that because we want people to jump in at any point and not be lost or, you know, that type of thing. So, yeah. And one thing I did want to mention, we mentioned the episodic nature of most of the series up until the, the Craig era. I think what makes or breaks a lot of these movies are the side characters. And in particular to me, they're Bond's allies that kind of greet him whenever he arrives at, at the location he's going to be. Um, and Dr. No was Quarrel. I guess he didn't yeah. greet him. They, they, they took him a while to meet and they were enemies at first. But he's a fun side character. But this movie, I think, has my favorite side character ally, which is Karen Bay, who is played by, I'm yeah. probably going to mispronounce it, but Pedro Armendariz, I'm going to say. Uh, I don't know if I nailed Sounds the close. pronunciation there. Yeah, yeah. I tried. Um, yeah, I love I love him as a side character. I think he's maybe my favorite Bond ally in the series. I think they've got great interplay with each other. He was di- The actor was dying as he was doing this, and you honestly couldn't tell because he brought such a life and energy yeah. to this movie. That's and crazy. I've yeah, I know. I, I I love that character in particular. And I think he the first half of the movie before they get onto the train, I think he's what makes it really enjoyable. And then the the tension once they get to the train. I think a lot of issues that I have with a lot of the movies, especially the early ones, is that they drag in the between the second and third act. Like when you get like 80 minutes into the movies, when they start dragging for me and right for Marshall with Love is one of the few that doesn't to me. Yeah, and a lot of those movies, Bond is maybe like just sneaking around in a, in the base or something, or yeah. just investigating something that maybe you don't care too much about at that point. Yeah, but yeah, that's um, a trope that I hate. I think you and I talked yeah. about that. Was yeah, uh, we, we we know who the villain is. Bond knows who the villain is, and we don't know if the villain knows who Bond is. And we're gonna yeah. spend an hour in the middle of this movie having Bond trying to infiltrate this thing, even though we already know who the villain is. Like yep. The, the audience is ahead of what's happening in the movie and like they know what Bond knows, obviously. I just have an overriding feeling watching all these movies of just get to it because I know you're going to get to it. It's not like you have another villain hiding behind the scenes in most of these movies. This is the villain. So right. why don't some, we just get on with it? Yeah, like there might be sometimes like, oh, the Bond girl is going to betray him or someone else is going to, yeah. you know, do that. But you know who the main villain is. So but mm-hmm. yeah, like, like you'd mentioned earlier with like a lot of the, the side characters that bond maybe meets up with or kind of what make or break it another thing that also makes or break it for me in a lot of mo- the movies um are the henchmen characters and also obviously the bond girls but the whenever there's a memorable henchman character to the lead villain uh-huh. that really helps because a lot of the, the villains in in bond movies are pretty standard and like you know take over the world yeah. or have a big plot nuclear something yeah um, in particular and, that what you're describing is the spy who loved me to me perfectly yes, which we'll get exactly. to yeah but uh, yeah, but if if it, if there is a good henchman or something that you that Bond has to fight with some weird thing like you, you did mention, like, but yeah, that can definitely make it. Um, I think even with the name, uh, like Pussy Galore and things like that, <laughs> thing you know can definitely make it. Um, that's I actually kind of like that character. So yeah, you know, well, it's you mentioned good henchman. I think it's a natural segue to the next movie, which is what many consider to be maybe the best Bond movie. I don't agree yeah. with that. Uh, but we're talking about Goldfinger, which was the third Connery movie. And this feels like the big one for like purists of the series. And I think yeah. it's really good up until about the third act or so. It, again, it gets to the point where it drags for me. I think it's 
near perfect for the first 80 minutes or so. And then it drags a little bit for me and picks up at the very end. But yeah, I think we've got a very maybe one of the most memorable villain henchman combos with Goldfinger and Oddjob. Oh, yeah, this is I mean, this is like when you think of Bond, uh, when you bring it up to yes. a lot of people like this is the one that they bring up. It is it's the villain and it's the the henchman um, and and just the iconography of of a lot of the scenes in the movie mm-hmm. uh, like obviously the gold stuff in that but it's uh it's really good this is it goes back and forth between this and from russia with love at this yeah. moment without having rewatched either of them in a little while the last time i watched them i remember thinking that i liked from russia with love just a little bit better but yeah this is a, I do too. This is a, a fantastic movie I, I love goldfinger and they obviously make a lot of references to this movie in later bond movies and stuff and like, in austin powers and in austin powers this is like where austin powers got <laughs> almost all of it from yeah uh so it's it's pretty great um yeah it's great i am um, I'm, I'm i'm not gonna necessarily go through my entire ranking i did make a ranking as i went through the series uh this is number six for me and from russia with love is number five so it's not like i think from russia with love is significantly better but the overall vibe of that movie i, I like more than goldfinger and i don't think it drags like goldfinger can in certain spots uh, but Goldfinger is yeah. great. Another another old, uh, thing that happened a lot in the older Bond movies was dubbing over voices. And mm-hmm. Gert, Gert Frobe is Goldfinger. He was mostly dubbed over for most of the movie. And yep. the fact that it doesn't bother me, I think, speaks to how well his physical performance was or how good his physical performance was in that movie. It shouldn't work that you you're dubbing over uh, an entire character throughout the entire movie. Like especially me who has an ear for uh, like audio editing and stuff like that. I can tell. And mm-hmm. it, the fact that it works, I think, is just a testament to his performance physically. Oh, it's I mean, his performance, obviously, you know, on his end was mostly physical. And that's, I think, why it came across so well. It's like and that's yeah. why they kept him in the role, I'm sure, at the point where it's like, mm-hmm. you know, the voice may not work, but this you he embodies what they wanted. I just think that that's really important. The other thing I also want to mention, it's really funny just going back to the um, GoldenEye video game, because that's where I knew Odd Job from. Yes. Initially. Yeah, that's right. And. Oddjob was like the cheat character. You, you, mm-hmm. no one was allowed to use him unless everyone was was Oddjob because <laughs> for some reason he is like half the size of everyone in that game, uh-huh. and he has a one shot weapon with him. <laughs> so it's it's ridiculous. So you can't really hit him because the aiming in those old games, you know, you can't really look down very easily. And I don't even know why he's that short because in this movie he's a normal sized person. Yeah. yeah, he's a he's a big guy. He's he's like well he's, built and everything, yeah. but he's not a giant, and he's not a, he's not small either. Right. I just I just looked him up, and he he was five ten and two hundred twenty yeah. pounds. Who's a stocky, muscular like guy at a normal height, and it's just like nope. We're in this game. I I, <laughs> I think there's some other stuff that goes into why they maybe did that. That's not great, but um, yeah, but it's just kind of funny. But Odd Job's always been. It like he is he is my favorite henchman character, and for a lot of reasons, mm-hmm. just from the movie itself and from the games, because like I mentioned, the uh, Goldeneye, but also Nightfire, which is a game I had on uh, GameCube. Uh, mm-hmm. You could throw his hat like across the entire map uh, and everything. So just it Bond has created some very um, iconic characters, and Odd Job for me is one that's kind of stuck with me, uh, and it stuck with a lot of people. Just a lot of it through the video games, which is interesting. Yeah. 
I, I had known Austin Powers growing up a lot. I watched the, the three movies a ton. And he was kind of uh, the first instance where I actually recognized, oh, this is a direct character in Austin Powers. They changed yeah. the name. His name is Random Task, which is yes, funny. I know. Um, but like this was uh, kind of the first other than like Blofeld stroking the cat in For Russia With Love. This is like the first instance of, oh, Austin Powers, which I'm uh, well aware of, has directly taken from this. That was kind of the first time that I really saw that. And uh, the couple of movies down the line is when we we really see it more with the main villain. But yep. this was the first instance where it's like, OK, I'm getting into familiar territory, at least in terms of what's been parodied. And all job yeah. was a, a big, a big point of parody. Right. And, and I do think that even though From Russia With Love is a movie, I think I enjoy a little bit more. This one has some, a lot more of the bond. It, it, it gets every movie so far gets more and more into what bond would, bond would eventually become and what people would think of Bond um, with with the villains and with the henchmen and all that. Like from Russia with with love, I definitely amped it up from Doctor No, and this just took it a step further. Yeah, I think it's got more iconic Bond stuff, but I would still say as an actual movie viewing experience, from Russia with love is stronger start to finish yeah. for me. Yeah, and I'd have to agree at this point until I go back and do a rewatch like you did. You got to do the got to do a rewatch, man. I it's know. I don't have a lot of time. Hey, I know. I'm yeah, married. No it's it's really die. hard to. I have no time to die, and we'll get to that one. But <laughs> hey, I, I'm married, and we're remodeling a kitchen. That's oh. part of the reason that I haven't been able to do my own podcast for a while is because, like, after work, I'm pretty much working on uh, the kitchen until that's all done. So uh, um, yeah, I'm glad I'm single. <laughs> life life definitely gets in the way. You're you're young. Yeah. You'll you'll get there. I know. Okay. <laughs> Um, so next up, we've got uh, Thunderball, the fourth movie, which uh, I'm not the biggest fan of. I guess I'll, I'll just yeah. open with that. So I'll I'll start because this one's interesting for me, because when I was young, when I was a kid, I loved this movie and I don't okay. really know necessarily what it was. But I, I mean, I can pick out the fact that looking at this movie now, the underwater stuff is almost impossible to watch. Um, yeah, it, it's but, just like there's. Again, we talked about the lack of score. I think yeah. this one is just, it just, I don't even think there's a lack of score, but it's just like little techniques that you wouldn't use nowadays that they, that they did all the time in action back then. Yeah. Like, they just didn't sure. know how to edit in these scenes. And you also can't tell what's going on, especially in the third act, the final, the final battle, because yeah. all the uniforms look the same. We're, we're barely even seeing Bond fight. It's a bunch of literally faceless people because they all have uh, underwater masks on. So we can't we don't know who's fighting who. And we also don't care about anybody because we don't know who any of they are, who any of them are individually. So it's like, why am I supposed to care about any of this? And it's dragging because it's like a whole 20 minute sequence underwater to end the movie. I know. And I think part of that is when I was younger maybe just as you're when you're a kid you have a little bit more imagination of what's going on but it felt very in tone not necessarily viewing even though it was it felt very dark and gritty and like this is a dangerous thing um and i don't know what's going on but i'm a little scared type mm -hmm. of thing when i was younger and i think that that once that part once that element it kind of disappears uh looking back on it it's like there's i'm not watching anything there's nothing happening that i can really yeah. distinguish at this point so it just makes that whole finale like pointless yeah, the finale in particular is like the my biggest grievance with that movie. I think before that, it's fine. It's nothing special. Like I ended mm. up giving it two and a half stars out of five when I rated it on Letterboxd this past time. Like I don't think it's terrible or anything. Uh, the actual like the main the main part of the movie is like it is what it is. It's just doesn't offend me, but it's nothing too interesting. What I always remember from Thunderball, other than the underwater stuff, though, is 
maybe my greatest uh, assassination attempt of Bond ever <laughs> in the first act of the movie where they try and kill him with a malfunctioning massage machine. Yeah, that that's was, the funniest that's thing in the world to me. It's so bizarre. Like, I know. And this was before the series had fully leaned into the campy stuff, too. And this movie, I think, is where we start to lean into that, because like the opening sequence, he gets his big jetpack thing. Mm-hmm. It starts to get it starts to get a bit more bizarre and a bit a bit sillier in tone in this one and it's funny because the massage assassination attempt isn't like played off to be funny or anything i think he has a, a quip at the end but no, it's, other it's than that played off to be pretty straight but i know <laughs> it's weird but what what i there's a, a big trend in most bond runs which is oh it starts out and it's very grounded and gritty and then it it they're like well it has to become james bond and then they yeah. introduce all the goofiness and craziness this is kind of where that happened for Sean Connery, and it was the first time it happened. Um, but yeah, it definitely starts to get into, like you said, with the jetpack. It's like, okay, well, that's that's quite a bit different than we've seen yeah. in the past few. And then at the, obviously the massage thing and, and all that. But it's, um, I think Thunderball, I, I, again, I think the finale just kind of ruins it. Like if it had a better yeah. finale, I think it would be like it would be fine. right in the middle of the pack of Bond movies. But I think that ending just kind of pushes it down towards the latter half for me. Yeah, it's in my bottom five. I I'm looking at my list here. I have my bottom one, two, three, four. My bottom six are movies that I would say I don't like. The uh, three stars or above is like my positive review of a movie out of five stars, and okay. uh, like the bottom six are the only ones. The only ones I have below that, and this is this is looks like my fourth worst. Okay, and that's and I think that's fair. It just gets dull at the end, and like it's not particularly interesting the rest of the way either. Like number two is kind of again, that was another Austin Powers thing. Uh, but number two is like he's just kind of a nothing villain. Like the idea of the character mm-hmm. is cool, but also directly seeing on screen and directly acknowledging throughout the movie that he's not the uh, the big bad. The overall big bad is just makes him feel like a weightless villain. I've, I have no yeah. strong feelings about this movie really at all. It's just kind of yeah. it's just very forgettable other than the wa- underwater stuff, which is uh, memorable in a bad way. Yeah, when I was like younger and more stubborn about certain things, I feel like I was like, no, all the Sean Connery movies are better than, you know, whatever name the other ones like uh, uh-huh. like any Roger Moore movie or that. But now I look back, it's like, no, this one's not it's it's not that great. And along with, uh, you know, one we'll get to later on. But yeah, uh, yeah, it's 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 OK. And then the ending's bad. So that that's, yeah. I think that's that's pretty much it. Pretty much all we got to um, say about this one. Yeah, so the next one, the fifth Connery movie, and what was thought to be his last movie at one point, mm-hmm. You Only Live Twice, which I really liked the first time I saw it. I think I watched it a second time and still really liked it. Um, I like yeah. the locale of Japan that they use for most of the movie. I like that we finally get to directly meet Blofeld, the big bad of pretty much the entire series, played by Donald Pleasance in this one. Um, I think he's great. I think the whole underwater, or not underwater, but the whole volcano the layer that he volcano, has yeah. is like, that's an astonishing set. And I think these early movies have great production design for the most part. I think Ken Adam uh, is the production yeah. designer on a lot of these early ones. I think it looks astonishing. And the movie, I remember being more fun in the first uh, two acts than I found it to be this time around. And I think the big problem, and it sucks because I liked him in, in at least the first three movies. I think the problem in this one is Connery. He seems bored, like really bored in this one. Yeah, like, and I th- I think he it comes across that way for sure. Um, I was just going to say, I think I tweeted when I was watching this, like I would totally buy it if you said he did one reading of every line in the ADR booth and that was literally everything he did. He didn't he didn't try anything, try anything beyond that. Like he read his lines on screen when he was being filmed and then he did them one time in post and that was it. That was all he gave him. Every line he just, you can tell. 
and it really detracts from the movie, which I think, other than some uh, offensive stuff, uh, some very yeah. badly dated stuff, I think sure. the movie as a whole is fairly enjoyable. I, I think the volcano layer is kind of the best thing about the movie when you think back yeah. on it. Like, that's what sticks out for me when I think of this movie. Um, the other weird fact that I always remember from this, like, do you, do you know who wrote this one, the screenplay? Yes, I've, I saw that when I, uh, yeah. I took a picture of that because I couldn't believe it. Roald Dahl of Charlie and the yeah. Chocolate Factory fame wrote wrote yeah. this movie i think he was I, the sole writer too he was i mean it, it's obviously <laughs> based on ian fleming's book but it's like that is insane i know I, I i never knew that and i i found that out a few years ago and it kind of blew mm-hmm. my mind especially because yeah. it was this one i i figured he might have written if you told me that Raul Dahl wrote a bond movie i would have probably picked something in the roger moore era like yeah you know as far as his style but yeah, well, that was also that, when he was when he was big as the 70s, like 74, I think, is when the Willy Wonka movie yep. came out. So, yep. like, I would have believed that, like, coming on the heels of coming off the heels of that, he would have wrote and they would have tried to get him to write a Bond movie. I would have believed yeah. that. But no, this was a whole almost 10 years before. Just kind of one of those weird facts that I remember, because this one, I mean, they they try they kind of uh, reference this one in, in Skyfall a bit um, with the whole. Do they? You know, Bond. Well, I mean, just when when this when when Skyfall was coming out, that was like the big talk is like they were like they're kind of playing off of what they thought because they thought this movie was, you know, not super great. Like looking back on it, and they wanted to kind of mm-hmm. have the plot with him dying and coming back okay. with that whole aspect. I, OK, yeah. Have a, have a new movie with that kind of plot line, basically. Yeah, um, I do like that overall that overall starting premise that they're faking his death so he can discreetly perform his work because the Spectre keeps being a thorn in his side. I actually like yeah. that idea conceptually. I feel like they just abandoned it almost immediately. But yeah, they do. I, I, I like that. I like that premise. And there's another movie uh, down the line, a few down the line that I love the premise of. And even though I think the movie doesn't fully live up to that premise, uh, but we'll get to that pretty quick. I just want to mention the offensive thing about this movie and half of it's offensive because it's just appalling that they would even put this on screen to begin with and the other half is offensive because of how little effort they actually put into it uh they try and make james bond uh to to quote them they try and make him a japanese mm-hmm. in this movie yep. a japanese and that pretty much means they smooth sean connery's hair down and that's about it <laughs> and i think they yeah. darken his skin a little bit unfortunately they i mean they don't do exactly that but in a later movie in the nineties, they do something uh-huh. in, in a, in a plot that we'll get to. That's almost as, as offensive as that looking yeah. back on it. And it's like, they did that like 20 years ago. That's not, <laughs> yeah, it's not good. That, that yeah. part isn't good. And uh, yeah, he trains with ninjas in this movie and it's not as cool as it should be. Like there's, there's stuff that like should have been better and there's stuff that obviously shouldn't have happened. And this, this one didn't hit for me this time as much as it did the last couple times. And I really just wish Connery gave a better performance here. Cause I think if he was really in it, he, this could have been great and it wasn't. Yeah. I, I still like remember generally liking it, but just not, it, there was, it was more that I, like most of the movie is very unmemorable to me. And then there's yeah. just like, you know, certain aspects that I think stand out as like, oh, I really remember this as a big, like iconic moment for Bond, like like the volcano layer and all that, where it's like, you know, some of the villain layers, it's like, that's what you think back on on the movies. And it's like, mm-hmm. OK, that's that stands out. That's cool. And, and they get back to that a little bit in the Craig movies in the last couple. Yeah. OK, so I think we are through with Sean Connery for for a second. We'll get back to him yep. in just a minute. But we have uh, one brief uh, interruption 
which is On Her Majesty's Secret Service with George Lazenby in the role of James Bond. Now, I remember liking this movie. Uh, I remember it dragging like a lot of them did. I watched it a second time and kind of felt the same. But I watched it this time. And this is, as of now, my second favorite in the series. I loved On Her Majesty's, nice. On Her Majesty's Secret Service this last time. Uh, I think Lazenby, obviously, he's he wasn't a fully trained actor. And I think you can tell in parts. Um, but I think all in all, he's charismatic. He's comfortable in the role, it feels like. Like, as he appears on screen, for the most part, I think he, he, do, he doesn't look like he's uncomfortable or or anything like that i think like he's not amazing but he's he's keeps up with the other actors around him and i think the overall plot of this movie being uh, at least in the first half being that he's genuinely falling in love for the first time that we've seen with bond mm-hmm. on screen with diana rigg who is amazing in this role she's great um they have great chemistry again for a guy who gets shit for not being the best actor. I think he's got great chemistry with her. And I think in the last scene of the movie, which we'll get to in a second, uh, he's, he gives a great performance. Like he breaks my heart in that last scene of the movie. And I, yeah. I will always defend, I will always defend his performance at the very least for that moment. I, I wish he had more. I wish he had at least one more movie because yeah. I love this movie. Like you said, I don't know. I didn't, I haven't done a ranking in a while. Um, I don't know if it would crack my top two because I think my top two are pretty, probably mm-hmm. pretty firm into it, but it's really far up there. This was one I really liked. Like when, when I was like, like, you know, I saw it as a kid, I think it, uh, the love storyline kind of bored me, but as I got just old enough for that to actually register, yeah. um, I think this is a fantastic Bond movie. And again, they try to do this or they try to set this up or at least for you to think about it going into no time to die. Um, yes. So, but it's, it's, this is a great movie with one of the best plot lines, at least for bond mm-hmm. as a character and yeah. George Lazenby, like, yeah, he is very charismatic. He's, he's, so he gets me, he gets you through the movie. Um, yes. So it, it works. And he it's shines just, in a few you know, moments. Yeah, exactly. And you know, there are a few times where you think, Hey, he's a little stiff or he's a little, you know, he's that line delivery maybe, you know, would, isn't the best, but, yeah, it's he's okay. a little wooden at times, but it's like, yeah. again, if he'd had the chance to fully, like, get comfortable with the role, which I think, you know, like I said, he appears comfortable enough on screen. But if he's got more seasoning as an actor and got to ingratiate himself more, I think I think he could have been a perfectly fine Bond. And yeah. I still think he's he's fine for what he is. He's probably if we're going to rank the actors, he's probably the worst actor of them all, I would get I would say. But like, probably that's not really that's not really a knock on him, because I think, like you said, he gets you through the movie. His performance works. They do something weird with him in this movie, though, which is he's not delivering his lines for about 45 minutes in the middle, which is fascinating because uh, yeah. he's he's impersonating Sir Hillary Bray. I don't remember who exactly he works right. for uh, someone in the government. But when he goes to uh, Blofeld's lair, Blofeld is played by Telly Savalas in this one. He's impersonating this, this Sir Hillary Bray. And I don't know if this was something that they decided to do because they thought Lizenby was struggling in the role or whatever. But the actor who plays Hillary Bray, who we meet in one scene, his voice is dubbed over Lazenby's voice for this entire sequence of the movie. And it's fascinating to watch. I guess in a yeah, lesser movie, I would, I would say this this detracts from the movie, but it really like it works for the most part. Like the period in mm-hmm. in the big uh, the ski lodge, uh, the whole like sequence in the middle, it it drags, I guess, a little bit. But this time around, it works for me better. And it's weird that they did this, especially with their main actor playing James Bond. But I'm surprised at how well it ultimately ended up working. Yeah, it, it worked. That's probably something I don't know when they came up with that as an idea. But like you said, if it's on set or if it's beforehand, because they knew they cast someone who wasn't an actor. But 
yeah, they for what they did that it, they pulled it off. Like I just looked up who yeah. that was, um, and it, it's George Baker is the guy, and he he okay, was a yeah. pretty established actor at that point. So maybe they were just like, we know he's a strong actor, and he mm-hmm. can deliver these lines throughout part of the movie. But whatever they did, I mean, it, it worked out. It's kind of a um, like it's Mission Impossible esque at that point. Yeah. But yeah, uh, yeah, no, that it for for whatever reason it works, and I I just. I think Lazenby didn't continue mostly because of behind the scenes issues. On yeah, set, he had he already pretty, decided he was, he was stopping on set. Like yeah, before it, they even finished the movie, he said he was done. Right. Like I think he wasn't happy. They weren't too happy with how he was acting on set, and it just didn't work. Uh, but yeah. I do wish he had at least one more shot, just to like, you know, mm-hmm. then you can at least maybe compare him and Dalton as like the one with the guys with two Bond movies and. Um, kind of throw him in there because yeah, it's unfortunate to have one, just one actor be the Bond that's yeah. only been in one movie. Yeah, but I've like I said, I love this movie overall. I think just when it's actually starting to dip a little bit, they bring Diana Ray back into the fold, and that third act is great. I think you really feel how much Bond cares for her. Another fun side character is her father in the movie, who's a crime lord of some kind that they refer that they refer to. Um, he and Bond have have some great interactions, and they end up working together at the end of the movie. And he gets his blessing to marry his daughter ultimately, and then they get married in the final scene. Uh, I guess the the penultimate scene. Uh, they yeah. get married. Bond gets married on screen, which is wild to think about, and it's touching. And the MI six crew, who we haven't talked about too much yet. Um, they're all there and they all have, it almost feels like they're saying goodbye to him in their own way. I think, I don't know if he yeah, I, said he was retiring from uh, MI6 at the end of the movie or not, but I think it was implied. Like, yeah. It was yeah. basically implied like that, that was happening. Even if he didn't say it, that's what I always think happened. Like that he was retiring and he was going to be married and go off and have a, you know, a normal life. Yeah. And just when he's going off to have that normal life, they pull over for a second and, uh, Blofeld mm-hmm. and I think Irma Bunt is the name of the character. They drive by and they try and assassinate Bond. The bolts miss Bond, but they hit his wife Tracy and she mm-hmm. dies right there in his arms. And it's heartbreaking. And I'm choking up thinking about it right now because yeah. of Lazenby's performance in particular in this moment is incredible. I think it's great. Like, you can hear him choking back his tears. And I, I heard, I don't remember if they kept this, but I heard he insisted on doing a take where he actually cried, which they pushed back on because they didn't want Bond to be too vulnerable in that moment. And I think that was a good instinct on his part. And I can't remember for the life of me if that's the, the take that they kept or not. Um, well, I mean, if he's not actually crying, he he sounds like it. Yes. Scene, you know, like, yeah, he, he's, he's very he's a broken up. man he's, in that moment. And he feels like a genuine reaction. Yes. And he's in denial, like the way he's talking to that that uh, passerby is like he's totally in denial that she's gone in that moment. And it's just an incredible performance on from an otherwise, you know, iffy performance. And I think it just ends the movie on a perfect note. And that's why I think this is one of the best Bond movies is that relationship and that payoff at the end. Yeah, it's you know, it, it Bond does not go, especially at that point, it never really had gone that, you know, no. to push Bond to that level emotionally. And they only really do it again um, with Daniel Craig, like mm-hmm. way down the line, you know, to, yeah. really, to really go there. But yeah, this was very different at the time for James Bond for a, for a movie. And, you know, it was weird just having the one off. I don't remember. I don't think this did nearly as well as a lot of the other ones when it came out, but it's one of my favorites for sure. Yeah, and I think the reason the reason they ended up bringing Connery back for the next one, Diamonds Are Forever, was that box office performance because yeah. he had some. I think the reason he left initially was that he had financial demands that they didn't want to meet back in this uh, 1967 with uh, You Only Live Twice. So he was done after that. 
they brought him back for diamonds are forever and uh we're going to opposite ends of the spectrum because this is my least yeah. favorite my outright least favorite of the series there's not much here i like uh charles gray as blofeld i think he's fun for the campiness that this movie provides i think he does well but i find nothing to take any interest in otherwise in this movie i my favorite part of this movie is the song and it's not close it's not like it's it's a good song it's not even one of my favorites of the series yeah. like i know you and i think ramon in our discord said this was his favorite song yeah it's not my favorite but i i really like this one and it's like it makes me think more fondly about the movie until i remember the movie yeah and i'm like oh no it's yeah it's just that i like the song it's 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 just it's boring really. yeah it's just like, like i said dull all the way through i think you get a slightly less bored connery in this one but he's still mm-hmm. not connery from those first three movies um yeah. Yeah, I just I don't I don't I don't even have much to say about this one. I don't remember much of it already and I watched it like two or three weeks ago for yeah, this marathon. Most up until recently, the most of the bonds who had a long run, like you know, that the, the last movie was their worst. And this definitely yeah. started that. It's it's um I didn't not think the about best that way to yeah. go out. Yeah. Yeah, I mean it, you know, it's tough with, with Dalton who had two and I do and that that one's a little bit more split on which one people like more but uh mm-hmm. for the most part uh, the last one it's like oh well there it's definitely time to to move on and i think we're going to move on to the next bond movie uh partially because we've run a little bit long on some of these and i think the ones that we don't have too many nice things to say about or that we don't have much to say about at all we don't have to yeah. uh so we're going to move on to live and let die your dad's favorite movie apparently when you were growing up yeah uh the first Roger Moore movie, they brought him in. Apparently, they'd considered him when they were casting the role originally, and when they were casting Lazenby, they considered Roger Moore. They brought him in here. I think he was 43 or so when he got cast in this. He came into the role, and this was an interesting movie to enter on because there's a lot of Bond formula that isn't present here, such as yeah. Q isn't in the movie at all. You don't get a scene with Q. Uh, you get to see Bond's house or his apartment uh, in the in the opening of the movie for the first time. Mm-hmm. That's that's how you get to establish his interactions with M and Money Penny and all that. And the movie almost entirely takes place in America. There's a lot of this movie set in New York, especially in Harlem, because yeah. this is 1973 and they were trying to capitalize on the black exploitation craze of the early 70s. Unsuccessfully, I think in a lot of instances, I feel like the largely white crew and cast that assembles Bond movies is not the best uh, group of people to tackle a black exploitation movie. No. Um and you can you can tell on screen in some ways. I think there's some good performances. Yeah, but Kodo is good as the villain and all that. Yeah, I, Dr. Kananga, like that, or Mr. Big, whatever you want to call him, either one, like he's, I think he's a really good villain. Like there's a lot of stuff in this movie that I actually do really like, um, including this this one. I mean, a lot of it might be because I also really like the Guns N' Roses cover, but this is up there as one of my, if not my favorite Bond uh, song. It's 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 one of the best songs for sure. Yeah. I like both versions of this song. Yeah, this was one of the ones that I knew before I watched the Bond movies, just because I think it was Shrek the Third that I actually heard this song, and I think it was the Guns N' Roses remake in Shrek the Third. That's funny. But I loved this song. I loved this song all so, the way back then, so and it's Shrek. still great today. I know. <laughs> I think Jane Seymour does fine in this movie. I think this was her first yeah. movie. She she was the main Bond girl. Solitaire. Yeah. I, I talked about the uh, problematic stuff that they did with her character a few weeks ago when Kat was on. Uh, we don't need to get into that again. Yeah. Um, it's not something that holds up well with this movie. And I think a lot of this movie just doesn't hold up well. It's more fun overall, but a lot of it's just like because of the stuff that they chose to focus on. It just hasn't. Yeah. And well. I think that is something that, you know, looking back on it like again like i haven't watched it in a little while i have more fond memories of this one 
but when I think back on the plot and like and everything and and where it takes place, it's like okay, that definitely looking at through looking at it through a lens of today, it probably would not work when I was younger and didn't even yeah. think about it at all. I was like, I probably enjoyed it and just knowing, oh, this is my dad's favorite one at the time that mm-hmm. you know, I probably just like, oh, this is a good movie and just watched it and didn't even think about it. So it's definitely one I you yeah. know I want to go back and see but it's i i'm fuzzy on a lot of the details on this one other than i like the song i know it's the, it's you know rogers moore's first movie um and it's mm-hmm. not quite as goofy as some of his later movies yeah this is in my bottom five but it's fifth from the bottom it's not it's not terrible this was uh yeah i, I went with two and a half stars on this one as yeah. well it's not too bad uh it's just got a lot of stuff that doesn't hold up i think it's more enjoyable to watch than than others even though it's one of the weaker entries in the series okay um, next up, we have uh, the man with the golden gun, which I love the premise of this movie I to death, too. and I wish it was it. I wish it was in a better I movie. Uh, I en- I enjoy this movie overall. Christopher Lee is great, and I I love like I said, I love the the whole idea of this movie from start to finish. I wish they would have done more with it, but it's it's still enjoyable nonetheless. And I think if we're talking about great villain and henchman duos, uh, uh mm-hmm. and Nick knack, even though, I mean, he's technically the henchman, yeah. obviously he's not imposing right. like a guy but like our job is because he's Herbie yeah. Villachey. Yeah. I, th- I think, uh, they have, they have a great dynamic with each other and yeah, I just, there's a lot of stuff in the middle of this movie that I just really don't like. And I think it's a weird performance for Roger Moore because in some places he's really serious mm-hmm. And I think, but I don't think his seriousness or his aggressiveness is a reflection of the fact that he's paranoid that an assassin is uh, on his trail. I feel like that's not where that performance comes from. I feel like it's just weird acting choices or weird direction or just a weird script. Like there's, they, uh, they have Maude Adams in here who comes back later in the series as like this tragic character who's like Scaramanga's lover who uh, is trying to get out of a horrible situation mm-hmm. and she's feeding information to bond and he like he beats her around to try bond beats her around to yeah. try and get the information and- out of her that he needs even though she's willing to give it she offers up her body to him in a really disturbing scene and bond takes her up on that offer like i feel like this movie's portrayal of bond is so confused even other movies in the series that are obviously offensive in the ways that they portray bond I feel like there's a bit more nobility, I guess, to the way they portray him. And here he's just aggressive and mean, just mean spirited in a way that I feel like the tone of the movie yeah. doesn't otherwise you know, fit this, with. This movie is one, like you said, like, I love this, this, uh, the general synopsis and the plot that and the setup of this movie. And again, throwing it back to the video games, it brought a lot of things to with the golden gun and all that and Goldeneye in that game. Mm-hmm. Uh, like it's, it has a lot of iconic bond things in it and, and i do like knickknack um in it i mean again weird knickknack was taller than odd job and you know <laughs> that's uh that doesn't make sense for a lot yeah. of reasons but um but yeah christopher lee i think is great and i i wish he did a bond movie as a villain like later in life like you know yes. if he was if he was a brosnan villain mm-hmm. like, you know and and they didn't and not when it was super goofy or anything but um i think that would have been fantastic for some reason, with Scaramanga, his uh, you know quirk that he has, his weird thing is he has a third nipple. <laughs> he has a third which, nipple, um, you know, because that makes him very villainous. Uh-huh. Uh huh. Not like a you know an eye, you know, bleeding eye or a, a bullet mm-hmm. in the head that's gonna you know slowly kill, kill him, him. But you yeah. know, just a just a third nipple. I don't know if that was a f- if that was in the original Fleming book or whatever. I don't. I'm not too familiar with the Fleming works. I haven't read any of them. I know some. 
I know about some of the premises and all that, but I'm not too familiar. I don't know if that was a quirk that they had with the character already, but it feels weird. And again, out of place with the premise of the movie overall for an assassin who's like Bond is like his big kill, like the one that he's been waiting for. I feel like you don't need that touch for him. Yeah, I know the only thing I know about Scaramanga in the novels is that he was in multiple novels. Oh, okay. Um, I'm pretty sure he was in like the novel version of like Diamonds Are Forever and maybe a, hmm. a few other ones, but um, yeah, he, was, he was more of a he was more of a long running villain and they brought him into the series uh, for this one. But I, I don't know about the nipple thing. Yeah, yeah, it, it, it's a weird touch either way. Yeah, I, I like the movie overall. I, I really like the opening sequence where you establish his lair and you see the game that he plays with people who he brings to his island. I think that's mm-hmm. fun. I like the I like the final action scene. That's a recreation of that. I think yep. just just seeing Bond do his like do his stuff, the stuff that he was trained for, and specifically in a way that outsmarts the villain. I again, I like all this conceptually. I love all this conceptually, and I think just being yeah. stuck in the but Roger Moore they, era around it just yeah, is, and then they bring in like it's his biggest like, drawback, like Mary Goodnight, who's that that character is just not a that's uh-huh. that's not a great character looking back yeah. on how they portrayed her in that one either. So yeah, there's. This movie, I, again, I think the short answer for both of us is it great premise, bad execution. And uh, I think that's kind of a lot of the Roger Moore movies for me looking back on them. I'm, I'm with you. Yeah, I don't have I don't love any Roger Moore movie, I'll say. Uh, like yeah. I love like I love a, a Connery movie or uh, Honor Magic Secret yeah. Service. There, there is one in a there's a, one that's a couple up that is not a good movie, but I kind mm-hmm. of love it. I think I think I'm with one. you on that one. Um, yeah. yeah, we'll we'll move on to the next one though. I think we're done with Golden Gun. Yep. Uh, the next one is, I think, generally considered the best Roger Moore movie is yep. The Spy Who Loved Me. We've talked about uh, uh, villain henchman pairings. The villain is kind of whatever Stromberg. He's just like a typical he's Bond okay. villain. Yeah. yeah. He, again, he he's serviceable. But then here's this is Jaws. Yes. Yep. Yeah, Richard Keel, who is great in this mm-hmm. role, even though he doesn't say anything, he he does talk eventually in the series. Um, but he's he's imposing here i honestly uh, i only saw this one once before this year i did not remember that jaws literally bit a shark to death i did not remember this yep that was amazing it's it's crazy i so this is this is my favorite this uh roger moore movie of at least that is that i acknowledge as a good movie like this is Mm -hmm. a good movie and it is um roger moore i think his best performance as bond to me like where he finally mm-hmm. kind of settled into the role because I, like you said I don't, I don't really think he felt too much like bond to me in his first few movies or he no. felt too mean-spirited or he was whatever it was this one i feel like he settled into the role and this is where it didn't quite get goofy yet and no. it was just a solid bond movie with you know with a fantastic henchman character which really can make the movie yeah, again, much like uh, Dr. No, the definition of solid is, is this movie to me. Like, I don't think I don't think it's great. I don't think it quite reaches the upper tier of Bond movies. I think it's technically in my top 10. I think it's number 10. Um, okay. It's good. And I just I think it's like solid all the way through. I think it's, it's a little too long, like most of these movies are. My main issue, I've just again, a, a premise, a thing that I love from the premise is that the the spy who loved him in this one, uh, uh, the spy that Bond is with. I'm gonna pull up her name because I can't remember it here. Uh, 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 Barbara Bach like, is the actress. Uh, yeah, it's Anya something. Anya, I yeah, Anya Amasova, who is yeah. a KGB agent. Uh, she's she's the Bond girl of this movie, and she's also an agent. And the uh, the hook is that in the opening sequence, Bond killed her lover, and this is a reveal that they wait to reveal until like middle of the second act, and. I feel like that's a great 
a great premise, especially for a relationship between Bond and the Bond girl. If you want to, if you want to give it more attention, and it doesn't really last beyond like a scene or two, and they're just kind of back together after that, and it, it, that bugs me. Yeah, so like they definitely it, you could have mined for more drama there, and they chose not to. Yeah, they definitely set it up to be. You think it's going to be a huge deal, and then it's just not. Like you know, it it's something. Like I kind of uh, equate it to they they pulled off a even though Bond didn't kill you know, someone in this case, I kind of equate it to Vesper a little bit where they could have done something like that with it Mm -hmm. where you, you, her real motivation is revealed much later and it's a huge thing. And there's more of a turn, even though she's fallen in love with bond, you could have done that. And instead it's just kind of thrown out the window. Yeah. Again, it's another, it's not, it's not uh, infiltrating the villain layer this time, but it's another thing that you're ahead of and you're waiting for it to be revealed because you know, it's going to, and you're just waiting for the movie to get on with it. Um, Again, another thing I like conceptually that they could have done more with. But all in all, I enjoy this movie. Uh, I like the underground layer. We like Jaws. I think it's just, like you said, just solid all the way through. I don't, it, it's never been upper echelon to me like it is for a lot of people. Uh, it's not my favorite Roger Moore movie. We'll get to that yeah. in a second. It, it's not um, even, when you start this title, it's not even the first movie that comes to mind anymore. Because of, uh, yeah, that's why he shocked me. Exactly. I, yeah. I more think of Austin Powers, you know, even I though they were, par- they were parodying this this title and I still think mm-hmm. of the parody. <laughs> yep. Yeah, I'm, I'm with you there. Um, OK, we're going to move on to the next one. This is a fun one to me. And some yeah. people hate this movie. Uh, we, we, we talk about a little bit about uh, Live and Let Die being reactionary. This is the oh, most yeah. reactionary movie of the entire series because this is 1979. We got Moonraker here and uh, they took a title that had something space related in it from an Ian Fleming work and they said Star Wars was big two years ago we're gonna make we're gonna put Bond in space and they put Bond in space and this movie is maybe as ridiculous as the series ever got but I think it's gleeful in its silliness and I think it works personally I 100% agree this is one yeah watching it it, I would call this a guilty movie pleasure for me like I, I acknowledge that it is a bad movie and it's the even the reason it was made is like everything I don't like about Hollywood yes. in that sense. But yeah, my cyn- my cynical so approach fun. to filmmaking today applies yeah. applies to what they did with this movie back then. But this movie has fun with itself, and it looks nice, and it's just overall enjoyable. Yeah, and like there are aspects of the of the actual filmmaking that are really good, like you said, visually. Yeah, the yeah. production design again is incredible when they get when they get to the spaceship. Like it's fantastic. Just these big sets that you can tell, like these are sets and they're putting all these extras on there. They're putting a lot of time and effort into establishing the scale of this for you. And it's effective. And you have uh, one of the, you know, one of the many interesting Bond girl names in this. Uh, one. Yes. Uh, Holly Good, Holly Goodhead. Uh, Dr. Uh, Holly Goodhead. I'll have yeah, you know. Do, sorry, Dr. Holly Goodhead. <laughs> is, is the, you know, uh, so that. That's fitting for this movie, though. You you yes. can't have this movie without a silly name. Uh, yep. But the other thing, they bring back Jaws, Richard Keel, which is rare, especially for a, a henchman character to actually bring back. And they, they put a little twist on Jaws in this one. Yeah, I, I like it. I, I do, too. He, he's like the reason I really enjoy the movie, that I can watch it. And like I could watch a whole movie of him and not Bond in this. Like I think yeah. that I think that would even be more entertaining. But uh, yeah, do, do you want to get into what they did with jaws in this movie uh so he's well he's a henchman for the first little while i can't remember if he works for drax or not drax is the he main villain first yeah okay 
yeah, who I always thought Michael Lonsdale in this movie looks like Peter Dinklage. If Peter Dinklage were full size, that's what that's what I always come <laughs> away thinking. Um, but anyway, J- uh, Jaws works for him and he's after Bond throughout the movie. He's after Bond in the opening sequence. He's after Bond working with Drax. It feels like his vendetta is against Bond because of what happened in Spy Who Loved Me, even though obviously he doesn't talk for the most part. You never hear that. Um, but eventually, after a failed attempt to get Bond on, uh, uh, what's the word, a gondola, he he falls down and a woman is there, uh, a young blonde woman, a nice young blonde woman who I can't remember her name right now. Uh, let's see if I can find it. Yeah, let me try to find who. Dolly. Her name is Dolly. Yeah, Dolly. There it is. Dolly is there to uh, pick him up and he it's funny they do the soft focus and the and the corny music when he lays his eyes on her for the first time (laughs) and from that moment on jaws is a goodie he's in love and he eventually becomes buddies with bond by the end they help each other out they help each other escape for what this movie is it's a perfect shift and i think jaws is the type of character with a silly enough gimmick as a henchman that you're okay with him turning good it's not like if mr hanks played by batista became a good guy and went against specter at some point uh i feel like that turn of the character is not as is i wouldn't accept it as much as i accept jaws turning in this yeah. movie because of how silly these movies inherently are and how silly jaws inherently is yep and i when i was younger this was a movie because i liked jaws so much especially in this one where they kind of make you feel for him yeah they you know they say the marines i think save him at the end of the movie yes i think so so i always thought well what what, what movie is he in next <laughs> he's in multiple you know as a kid i'm like wait i, I want to watch the next one with jaws like you know i know um and unfortunately this is the last time we we see him uh and the next time that i saw uh at least richard keel was uh, a little happy bit gilmore? later in the 90s and happy gilmore which uh-huh. is one of my favorites as well but yeah um yeah yeah i think i think a lot of the reason you didn't see him if we want to transition to the next movie is that after every bond movie that goes a little bit too far they do a course mm-hmm. correction, and I think for your eyes only, the next Roger Moore movie is another attempt at a course correction. This is, yeah. I think, by far the most grounded Roger Moore movie. And for me, I think this is the movie that made me really realize that I just do enjoy when Bond gets more serious and grounded because this is my favorite Roger Moore movie personally. It's your favorite, yeah. I I, I like this one. This is actually one I don't have a lot of memory on right now. Like I I remember liking it, but I yeah. I remember. Uh, Spy Who Loved Me, Moonraker, uh, a lot more, and and even The Man with the Golden Gun, even though I don't love it, I remember that movie a uh-huh. lot more than this one. So I, why don't you take the lead on this one? Yeah, well, I think you're fair in that those movies have inherently more memorable elements. This movie is just like, it's straightforward, start to finish, like, there's not there's not a lot of frills to it. There's not a lot of, like, usual Bond silliness to it. Um, they have a couple areas that are silly, but for the most part, this is a fairly grounded revenge movie. Carol Bouquet uh, plays the main Bond girl, even though she's very much a couple decades Roger Moore is uh, younger than Roger Moore in this movie. Eventually, they do take it a romantic direction between the two, but I think for the most for the most part of this movie, I get a father-daughter type dynamic between them, where Bond, especially as they start the movie with him sending flowers to Tracy's grave, which is one of the few times they acknowledge continuity, to me, Bond, from the start of this movie, he understands that revenge is not the way, necessarily. And he's trying to uh, bring that wisdom to her because she wants to get revenge on the people who killed her parents at the outset of the movie. And I think they do an okay job overall in addressing that, even though I think the end of the movie, it doesn't really pay off, which is kind of a problem with me. But all in all, I really like watching this movie. I think it's well-paced. Again, uh, honestly, what sets Bond movies apart for me is if I think they're well-paced and how much they drag in the middle. This one doesn't really drag for me. Um, It's got like a whatever kind of reveal. Julian Glover is the ultimate main villain in this movie. 
they do kind of tease that it's someone else for a while then they reveal that it's him but like he's nothing memorable as a character he's got no, there's no real standout qualities to him that's kind of where the movie uh does does have a few drawbacks but i remember sequences in this movie in particular that i love there's a car chase in the first uh like about half hour into this movie and it's got a great piece of score by bill conti who did the rock uh, the first couple rocky movies i think um, that I remember. It's one of my favorite car chases in all of cinema, honestly. There's a couple good chase sequences. There's a fun ski sequence. Uh, Bond movies love their ski sequences. Um, and there's a great one here. And there's just a lot of good action beats in this movie. And I think that's what I remember, along with the, the more grounded nature of it as a whole. And I don't think it's the most memorable movie in the series, but I enjoy watching this from start to finish. And I, I appreciate the overall vibe that it has. I think it might have been a little too hard of a course correction after Moonraker, but I think it works for the most part. Okay. Yeah, no, I like like I said, this is one I, I generally remember liking, but the Roger Moore movies for me uh were never my favorite ones of the series. So they're not this mine is either. Not one, this is not one that I that I revisited too much. Um but surprisingly, the next one we're about to talk about I think I like more than a lot of people. I think I like this one okay too. So the next one, uh, the sixth out of seven for Roger Moore, is one of the most amazing titles in the history yeah. of cinema. Is uh, Octopussy uh, from 1983, which was where I think people were starting to notice Roger Moore was looking a little bit old in that role. He was 56 yeah. when this movie came out. This movie is a bit of, I don't know if you want to say this is a course correction from For Your Eyes Only, but it goes back into some of the silliness. I think this movie, maybe more than any other Roger Moore movie, strikes that middle ground in a good way. It's not yeah. totally ridiculous, totally outlandish. It's got some silly stuff in it. Uh, there's an MI6 agent that dies in the beginning that's dressed like a clown, and then ultimately Bond dresses like a clown later in the movie. Yeah. Like it's got silly stuff, but I think this is fairly enjoyable all the way through. Yeah, this one is one of those like not a lot of people. I, I don't think there's a lot of people that you know like this movie. They think it maybe it's just okay or whatever. That but this yeah. one stands out in the Roger Moore movies for me because, for one thing there's a lot of action in this movie it keeps the pace mm -hmm. throughout the movie pretty well it yeah. you know even though he is sneaking in like it has that kind of trope that we were talking about i think it's done a lot better than a lot of the other bond movies where it's not do it doesn't drag as much and you also i really like the bond being hunted scene i think that's you know bond doesn't talk and it's very you know i think it's a it's a well shot yeah you know more thrilling scene than you get in a lot of bond movies up until that point um, and I, and I like Maude Adams as Octopussy, which I is, do too. you know, I, I think she's really good despite the name. Uh, I think she's a good yeah. character. I honestly think the name of this movie is what makes people think it's terrible. Just yeah. more than anything. They hear the name. They're like, ugh, that's everything I hate about Bond, which I get totally. But I think the movie itself beyond that is mostly enjoyable. I think it uh, gets a little too long in the third act. Like when it actually gets to the action stuff, I'm kind of disinterested a little bit. But for the most part, this is this is like a totally fine movie. I have no like strong feelings about it, but I enjoy this overall. Yeah. And I think Roger Moore in this one feels like cause I, this is actually one I did. I think I told you I was watching it a few weeks ago because it was on TV. Um, and uh, Roger Moore just feels more relaxed in this yes. movie in a way. Yeah. Um, and I think it works for this movie because I felt mm -hmm. it, it was almost like, you know, he was trying to be the the witty kind of, you know, maybe a little bit more you know, like mean spirited type or whatever. He just didn't quite feel as natural in some of the movies. And then this one, he just kind of relaxed into it. And I think it, it played really well for the type yeah. of movie they made for sure. Yeah. Yeah. This is, this is an overall solid entry. I think it's, it's on the lower 
part of the series for me in my rankings. But again, like I like most of these movies, at least in the bare minimum of like three out of five stars ish. I, yeah. I, I gave most of the movies at least that rating. That's where I ranked this one as well. Uh, so we have one more Roger Moore movie, yeah. which is one of the uh, uh, oh, most notorious entries in the franchise. 1985, a 58-year-old Roger Moore starred in A View to a Kill, which we talk about the best Bond songs. The Duran Duran View <laughs> to a Kill song is right up there for me. It's, it's at good. least top three. It's probably top two, honestly. Yeah. It's I love it, and it uh, does... <laughs> It, it belongs in a better movie than this. I have no idea what the hell is going on in this movie. Yeah, it falls into the Diamonds Are Forever, uh, you know, thing. Again, last Bond movie, but great song. Mm-hmm. I don't know what they were doing with the movie. This one I is, don't either. I mean, for one thing, I mean, Roger Moore should not have been playing Bond at this age. No, and but, he knew it. Oh, and yeah. he, he talked about it afterward. I think he said the official point where he realized he was too old was that Tony Roberts, who is the Bond girl in this movie, who, again, mm-hmm. I think he has a father-daughter relationship with almost yeah. throughout this movie. And I think that's honestly why Octopussy works better is because Maude Adams is close enough in age to Roger Moore compared to the other Bond girls that you actually buy that a bit more. Uh, but that's gone in this movie. Um, but anyway, Roger Moore said that uh, he realized he was older than Tony Roberts' mother. And that was when he realized officially it was time to hang him up. I think he was about 30 years older than her. I think it's is, maybe even more than that. Hold I, on. It, it's at least that, I, it, if I remember. Yeah. So he was born right. in 1927. She was born in 1955. So 28 years. 28. So yeah, right around 30 years. This movie, yeah, it's a comedy. Like this movie is a comedy and it's yeah. not supposed to be. And yep. not in a, it's not fun though. Like even though it's a no. comedy, it's it's not fun. It's really it, boring. Like, yeah. <laughs> For a movie that has Christopher Walken as a Bond villain, which is a great yeah. idea, this it like this, just, this movie just doesn't. Yeah, this just doesn't service him. Like Grace Jones as Mayday, I think is mm-hmm. a very cool looking character. I mean, Grace Jones yes. is very striking. Like her, just as a as a visual Bond, yes. you know, villain or what you know, she is very striking, and and it fits Bond and that character. I really liked in the Goldeneye games and all that because it just it as as a design just stands out. Yes, but she deserves to be in a much better movie because it doesn't work in this, especially as Christopher Walken's uh, lover in that. Like it's, it's really weird. This movie, I guess the best way I can say it, it feels at odds with itself. It feels like it wants to be more contemporary. It's got the Duran Duran song. It's got Christopher Walken and Grace Jones, uh, which feel much more contemporary than the rest of the MI6 crew who I think get exposed for how old they all are in that horse racing scene. Because yeah. all these all these people are out in the field. Roger Moore is pushing sixty. Lois Maxwell, this is her last movie, is Money Penny. Uh, she's in her fifties at this point, I think. Uh, Q is there, and Q, uh, poor Desmond Willen, he looked old his entire life, I think, um, and he looks really old here. Like yeah. just everybody on the MA6 side of things looks so old compared to how contemporary some of this movie is trying to be. Like they have Tanya Roberts in there, who was kind of big at the time, and she was mm-hmm. fairly young. Like they have, like I said, Christopher Walken and Grace Jones. It feels at odds with itself, I think, a lot of the time. And it just doesn't, it just doesn't know what it wants to be. This, this one was second from the bottom for me, just above uh, Diamonds Are Forever. Like it's, it's really, it's really boring. And I don't like using, I I usually say dull instead of boring, because I feel like that's more of a critic's word to say, I guess. But this movie just bored me to tears. Like I, there's no way around it. It's funny in an unintentional farce kind of way. Uh, but it's just like not enjoyable to watch, even though parts of it should be. Yeah, it again follows the trend of last Bond movie for the actor, and it's just where they should have stopped well before that. Yep, but they moved on after Roger Moore, thankfully, and we got a very interesting two movies to look back on in this series. Yeah. Because these two movies with uh, Timothy Dalton in the role, 
they feel less like Bond than any other point in the series to me. Well, I was just going to say it's interesting. I mean, we're getting to the living daylights right now for Timothy Dalton, but Timothy Dalton, the, this Bond is a lot more of what Ian Fleming wrote in the books. Like yes. Bond was much more of a an assassin character, much more of a, you know, cold, much more cold, not not quite as as quippy and, and uh, you know, suave like that. That that's a part of it. But Bond was a lot more brutal in the books. And yeah, this they tried to get to that. I think they fell short of really nailing it until Daniel Craig. But uh, mm-hmm. this was Daniel Craig. The, like this was what they were trying to do. It was yeah. a Daniel Craig reboot basically at that point. Yeah. Um, so Living Daylights, the first one, uh, another song that I enjoy. I always kind of forgot these two songs, uh, much like I forgot a lot of these two movies in the five years since I watched them all for the first time. Um, I like the, the Gaha song at the beginning. That's good. Yeah, that's good. Um, and I really like Dalton in this role overall. Again, he doesn't feel like Bond to me in the sense that I don't think either. I think he can pull it off performance wise, but I don't think he's written to be charming in the way that Bond should be at least to a certain extent, um, that even Daniel Craig always has a bit of charm to him that I think Dalton's kind of lacking here. Um, but I like his performance overall. I like this movie overall for the uh, for the most part, just not particularly memorable, I guess, is the main crime, yeah. I guess. it's I enjoy watching it, and I personally enjoy it more than License to Kill, the next one. But it's just like, even thinking about it now, I'm trying to remember a lot from it, and I'm kind of struggling. Um, it opens with like an assassination attempt, which I really liked, and... Then after that, it just kind of settles in. There's some stuff that I like, but a lot that I'm struggling to remember now. <laughs> yeah, no, this one for me, um, I actually, and I, I know I think I'm in the minority on this one, but I actually prefer License to Kill over this one. Um, okay. But I generally do like Dalton. I think they they were really trying to do the gritty reboot before it was cool, pretty much at that point. And it's a bit before Dalton, its time in that regard. Yeah, exactly. And and I and I think Timothy Dalton was going for that, like the suaveness and everything. I think they're trying to leave a lot of that, um, in the past and kind of complete 360 or well, complete uh 180 from, yeah. uh, from Roger Moore. And I think it worked for the most part. I really do like Timothy Dalton, the role, but it was not yeah. what anyone wanted at that point. Like these movies did not do well, um, at the time, especially for James Bond. Uh, and you know, I mean, obviously if you do a kill was not known to be very good. And then this one bond was starting to maybe get, a little bit more of a bad reputation at that point because um, this was just too too uh, too dark of a take. And it wasn't, I mean, this one was not overly dark, but it was just the performance wasn't nearly as uh, charismatic as people were used to. Yeah, yeah, I think, um, and I think a lot of that, honestly, the way the for this movie not feeling like Bond to me is that I look at people in these roles, the roles that I know, but Dalton is James Bond, um, you got Robert Brown as M. You've got a new Money Penny who I can't remember, but like all these people who are only there for a couple movies, they these movies feel like outliers as a result of that. Yeah. And honestly, they come off almost like fan films at times, just because in my head I don't associate any of these people with these roles. Like Bernard Lee was M forever in the uh, like the first half of the series. Basically, I associate him with M. Same with mm-hmm. Lois Maxwell as Money Penny. You have the through line of Desmond Llewellyn on his queue in these movies, thankfully. But yeah. like everything else just doesn't feel like MI6. This is when they had to start changing the, the roles f- finally. And it just it just fell off to me because we'd been like so comfortable, I guess, for lack of a better term. You'd had those people in those roles in MI6 forever and all of a sudden they're gone. And they're in a movie that overall doesn't have the level of, I guess, personality or charm that they want the series to have. 
And I think all that just kind of ends up making it feel a little, little hollow and a little out of place in the series. Yeah. One character we haven't brought up yet is Felix Leiter. Um, yes. And I actually do like uh, John Terry um, as, as Felix in these, in these movies. I think he, I think cause Felix, he's like one of those characters that, you know, he pops up in, you know, a decent amount of movies and um, it's just kind of a fun, it's like, Oh, there's Felix. Like he's kind of a fun character that Bond gets to interact with from the CIA. Um, and they do something with him in the next movie that, you know, I, I'll talk about, but I, I generally do like him in these. I, he actually stood out a little bit more cause I like the mm-hmm. character of Felix, but um, yeah, it, th- this one is just a little bit more forgettable to me and i think his next one i have a little bit little bit more to talk about at least yeah just want to mention one thing is that the third act of this movie has bond fighting with the mujahideen uh because this is an 80s movie and i guess that's what they wanted to do then it's again that's i think the most fascinating thing to look back on this movie for is that that's what happens in the third act plenty to look back on i guess um for sure but moving on to the next one license to kill um you mentioned john terry's felix Leiter. we have a different felix Leiter in this one in license to kill Mm -hmm. uh which is funny because they kept recasting that role constantly pretty much throughout all the movies. I think, uh, let me pull it up. I don't know who plays him in uh, License to Kill off the top of my um, head. Oh, what was his, what was his name? Because I, I, I saw this not too long ago, but... David um, Hedison, there we go. Yeah, there it is. He played him in Live and Let Die, and he was the first one they brought back as, first actor they yeah. brought back as Felix, I think. Um, yep. And he's and Felix I, and, in this yeah. movie. Right, and I think they did that for a reason because they wanted people to kind yes. of recognize him and and that for what they did with the character. But this was the first PG thirteen Bond movie. Yep, um, you can tell. Yeah, you can really tell. And this they, is nineteen eighties PG thirteen when they created it in nineteen eighty five ish after Temple of Doom, because yep. of how crazy Temple of Doom was. Like this is a very young, fresh uh, PG thirteen rating that they used to get away with a lot more with. Yeah, this is definitely more brutal than we've seen uh, in for, Bond. For sure. Like, and that's what that's what's more memorable for me about it, that it stands out a lot more than Living Daylights. Okay. Um, I think if they pushed it even further, then it would be a great Bond movie and like one that st- stands yep. out among all of them. But they, they kind of pull back at the end um, yep. and undo a lot of this stuff. Cause, so let's get to it. So what sets Bond's, Bond off in this movie is that his friend Felix Leiter is supposedly killed. Um, he's fed to a shark. Yeah, even he's though, fed to a shark. Uh, I, I'll push back a little bit because uh, the villain played by Robert Dobby in this movie specifically says that he wants him to suffer but not to die. So he yeah. has the shark eat enough of him to uh, ruin him. I think he takes his legs off. Um, I don't remember exactly, um, but he stays alive, and I think we know that he's still alive throughout I thought this movie. They, I, I thought Bond. If I was remembering, I thought Bond thought he was dead at least. Um, I don't well, I believe be, so. I could, maybe I, I could be I wrong could be too. Wrong thinking, I, I don't know. I could be, again, it has been a little while since I saw it, but that's generally been my, my feeling was that they kind of, you know, undo that at the end a little bit with him. coming. This time back, around, but... I do remember a line where, uh, he said that he, I don't know if he said in outright terms that he wanted him kept alive, but I'm pretty sure that was the implication was that they had the shark yeah. eat a bunch of him, but not enough to kill him. And he's, he's alive at the end of the movie. Um, the thing that bugs me about this movie, and this is just something that happens at the very end, is that when they come for Felix, they kill Felix's wife, who he marries at the mm-hmm. beginning of the movie. And then at the very end, when Felix calls Bond, they don't talk about it at all. Felix is in very good spirits, all things considered, even though uh, he's been permanently injured, permanently disfigured, and uh, his wife was killed. And yep. he's just in good spirits at the end, talking to Bond. That's always bugged me. 
And yeah. that's just that's kind of my issue with a lot of this movie is that I feel like a lot of this movie ends up undercutting itself when exactly. it wants to be when it wants to be really serious. And I think it pushes it really well in a lot of areas. There's another movie that I think is kind of I don't know if I want to say it's reactionary because this is a whole six years after Scarface. But this is a straight up Miami drug type movie. Yep. I mean, it has the DEA and everything. Yeah, it, for sure. Because the premise of this movie, again, it's like if they didn't undercut it, this had the potential to bring Bond to somewhere like, you know, that he wouldn't have ever gone to in the series because, mm-hmm. be, you know, that he gets his license to kill revoked because he's essentially going on this kind of revenge tour thing. Yeah. It's basically, you know, Liam Neeson and Taken. And he's just, you know, on this kind of uh, tirade at that point. So <laughs> that 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 uh, pushing Bond that much, I think, is a really good idea. And it made for the first PG-13 movie, which, you know, makes sense that that's the premise that does it. But um, they definitely were scared. They were worried about it. And they undercut a lot of that with this, you know, with this kind of, oh, but everything's OK. Don't worry. Like, you know, it, it's, you know, it, yeah. it, they didn't quite go all the way. Yeah. Yeah. I wish I wish they would have just if this was the direction, which I think the movie looks like it. Um, it doesn't feel like a Bond movie again to me. This one feels even less like a Bond movie than Living Daylights. I just wish they would have honestly just gone even further. But there's yeah. one thing I do love about this movie, and it's a trope that happens a few times, is that we get Q out in the field, which I always yeah. enjoy. We get to see Desmond Llewellyn out of that little uh, uh, bunker that he always yeah. works in, and I, I enjoy that. It's not like doesn't make the movie great or anything, but I enjoy when he gets a little more to do. I enjoy when the entire MI6 crew gets a bit more to do outside of just their offices. I like when those characters get to be get to do a bit more than just sit around spouting exposition to Bond at the beginning. I like when they get more to do. Yeah, I, I agree. I, I, it's always fun to see. Otherwise, I think this movie is OK. Um, I was a little disappointed this time around. Um, got a young beat, but Benicio del Toro as a henchman. I forgot to mention that. Oh yeah. <laughs> um, it's funny to look back on because, like, I again, I don't remember a lot of the people in these movies. Like they, they have John Reese Davies in Living Daylights, who's fun. Um, yeah. but other, otherwise, like these two movies, they don't really have memorable characters, really. But and it's not that Benicio del Toro is a particularly memorable character in this movie, but he's just if you know him, you notice him, and it's like I like in my head, I don't think of him as doing movies that far back. Everything I think from him is like 2000s or later. Yeah, there's definitely some actors you look back and like, oh, they they did this before they really, you know, really hit it off. And this was just a, a role like it was just a random role that they got. And uh, it's always fun to see that in not just Bond movies, just anything. It's like, oh, yeah, here's a whatever example you want to throw out there. But I, I generally do like License to Kill, but it's um, it it does undercut itself. So it doesn't stand out as like one of the top movies for me but i i think i like it more than most people yeah i i, I think the first time i watched it i i really liked it and i i was disappointed this time around but i still think it's it's okay overall uh, but after this we had a nice long six-year break between bond movies and usually this was a one to two year gap between entries kind of series but they had a nice long gap i had heard that they had planned to do more dalton movies even as late as like 1992 93 did uh yeah, but those never those never happened. They ended up finally casting Pierce Brosnan after I think he almost got the role originally when they were giving it to Dalton. But I think his TV commitments prevented that, if I know the story correctly. Yeah. Uh, it's Remington Steele. That's what I was trying to think of. Yeah, yeah, I know. I was thinking the same thing. I was about to say it, and then I like I blanked on the name, too. But yeah, Remington uh-huh. Steele. Because, yeah, he was going to be cast before Dalton. And then um, Dalton, though, was still supposed to be Bond at this point. Like, he was contracted for three movies. And they were gonna. He, I think, the early drafts of Golden Eye, like of of Golden Eye, were written for Dalton, and then they just kind of converted it over to to Pierce Brosnan. Yeah, but honestly, and we'll get into Golden Eye now. 
Um, I can't imagine this movie being any different. I think this is this is a top three for me. This is my number three. This movie is like perfect distilled 90s and also like a perfect representation of Bond in the 90s to me. Like this feels perfectly of its time, but I also think it holds up for the most part. This start to finish is just fantastic to me. This was um, Martin Campbell somehow has the perfect way to introduce a new Bond uh-huh. because he made this. And I, I want him for the right next now, one, but, damn it. Yeah, but he <laughs> is um, he did a great job directing this and introducing us. I think just the the intro scene where we first see James Bond in this movie for the first time uh-huh. is one of the best kind of uh, introductions to yeah. the character. It's um, one of the best opening sequences overall because they, oh, they, yeah. they take care of a lot of business in those 10 minutes or so. And it's it's just great like the bungee jump is an iconic stunt i i think and it's it's another it's silly but like your introduction to bond being that he's upside down in a bathroom yeah, punching I a know. guy in the face in a toilet stall that's fun um you get you establish the relationship between him and 006 alec trevelyan played by sean bean um you establish uh what's his name oromov the the russian oromov. general who's going to come back into play later in the movie but like i said they take care of a lot of business in this opening sequence and i think it sets the tone perfectly for what the movie is it looks great there's a couple shots specifically what i remember is brosnan uh kicking a door in and then coming down the stairs and then aligning perfectly into frame as he lifts the guns up uh, lifts his gun up and the light perfectly shines on his face like this is when i think the filmmaking and the quality of the direction started to shine and again we can credit martin campbell for a lot of that oh, yeah. um i think i think the action in this movie is definitely the best of the series it had to this point and i think the action holds up a lot like holds up really well overall yeah and i think this movie has one of the best cinematic uses of a bond gadget like one of the the pen the pen i love the pen that's Um, that's a great simple tension they only had to bring it up once and you knew it yep you only bring it up once and he he has that kind of tick throughout the movie uh we're talking about boris um who is alan cumming yeah yeah alan cumming and he's just fun he's a fun character and he's you know he's just a little uh adhd you know scientist type guy or whatever but bond has this this pen you you're waiting for him to just hit, to click it. That's all, and you're just or to click yeah. it as many times, and and that it's just a perfect simple use of it. Because um, mm-hmm. a lot of time, I think they overdo the gadgets as they get move on, and this was just a simple one that they did well. Um, Sean Bean is great. Uh, I he even, is. I yeah, like uh, Femke Jensen is as Zenya on a top <laughs> is good. I, I this is this is definitely stands out. Like I like I said, I played the game well before I saw the movie, and I didn't realize how much I knew of the movie just from playing the game because the storyline, the story mode is this basically the movie, but uh, it's, it's really good. I, it's definitely my favorite by far of all the Pierce Brosnan movies. Yeah, mine too. And it obviously introduces Judy Dench as M who I love. Uh-huh. Uh, and she gets a great scene with Bond. Yes. Yes, she does. Their first sit down with each other is fantastic. And I wish, yeah, it's a great I introduction. Wish she and Brosnan in particular, I think have an interesting chemistry that I wish we could have gotten more of. One thing uh, I know I mentioned in License to Kill that I love uh, Q being out in the field, but I think the strongest, honestly, a couple of the strongest Q scenes we get are Q just in his office with Pierce Brosnan in this movie and in a couple movies down the line. This movie, I think in particular, is my favorite. Um, I love I love the total disregard that Brosnan has for Q's gadgets in, the, in this scene in particular. Um, it's just a fun dynamic that those two have. And the gag at the end where Brosnan thinks that this big sandwich <laughs> is a gadget of some kind, but it's just Q's lunch. I think it's yep. just a perfect com- comedic button to end that scene on. I just, I love those Q scenes in, in the Brosnan movies in particular. I don't know what it is about them, but they just work I, their, so well to me. Their relationship just is different than most of the other Bonds. And I, I just, the, like the banter back and forth and how much 
Pierce Brosnan just kind of disregards Q. It's really, it's really great. I, I think those definitely stand out even in the bad movies with Pierce Brosnan. Mm-hmm. I still love just watching the Q scenes. I mean, I like the Q yeah. scenes in most of the movies. Like I always like a good, I always like a good gadget scene, um, which I wish there were more of in the, in the Craig movies, but uh, yeah, know, it, those two just have the, the studios have like a fun cute dynamic like some of his interactions with connery and Moore are kind of mean-spirited um and they like some some of it's good banter sometimes some of it's just kind of mean-spirited i just i always get the sense that he and brosnan's bond do actually like each other and he like he like brosnan winds him up a little bit but he still likes him and i don't always get that vibe with the other movies but i feel it in all these movies here yeah they feel like more old friends who like to push each other's buttons or at least more you know, a little bit more of a like that they have a history together, even if it's yes. the first time we've seen this bond with this cue. It's still like you get the sense that they've been together for a long time and it just the chemistry is just great. And so that's one of the things that the, Pierce Brosnan has a lot of aspects to his bond that are some of the best in the series. I just wish he had some better movies. Yeah, I'm I'm with you. Um, Goldeneye just feels especially considering what the series had been for a while it just feels fresh it feels like if i'm i mean obviously it was a big it was a big movie and the game was obviously a classic but it just feels so relevant i guess like especially for the time it came out it just feels like it was the right movie at the right time with the right people i love like all the characters in this movie i think it's just a great a great uh, not just a rogues gallery of villains but like uh, i like i think natalia is her name the bond girl in this movie i like her i like her i like her interactions with bond like sean bean's greatest trillion he's got he's got enough of a history with bond that you you feel it emotionally a little bit um famka jansen has the on the top which is another valentine too yeah yeah oh robbie coltrane yeah Yeah. uh he's great like just everything works in this movie i think like other than the score the score by eric sarah is a little weird sometimes it it has a lot of electronic things in it that are just it's like kind of electronic and it's also very percussion based like he'll just kind of play he'll just play the drums and then nothing else especially in the opening scene the opening sequence for whatever reason um just and in the the race scene the next scene with bond and on top there's some weird music choices there it's fine as the movie goes along, but it just stands out as kind of weird. Um, and it detracts from the action a little bit, but I think this movie is just great top to bottom. Yeah, this is definitely my favorite of Pierce Brosnan's movies, um, and it's one of my favorite Bond movies for sure. If I did a ranking, I'm sure it would crack my top five. Yeah, it's this is number three for me. Uh, yeah. We talked about my two and my three. We'll get to my one soon enough. Mm-hmm. Uh, this next one is not my number one, but <laughs> I really like it. I really like Tomorrow Never Dies personally. Okay. I th- I think this is like again, it's nothing too special, but I think this is like perfect Bond formula to me. Like you've got a silly over the top villain, you've got Bond in here, he's like he's just being cool, he's just doing his thing. It feels very formulaic and conventional, but I think in like a good way. Yeah, and to me, I don't hate this movie. I mean, I think it's definitely um the second best to, of the Pierce Brosnan movies and mm-hmm. I like and I can watch it, but it's it like you've said before with I find this one a little bit dull for the most part. Okay. Other than like like I think they they stripped back some of the elements that they introduced in Goldeneye and like kind of took the wrong, you know, Goldeneye established what this bond is, and then Tomorrow Never Dies I think took a lot of that and took the wrong message from it pretty much, and it, and it made it a little bit more dull for me. And and even the villain in this, oh, uh, you don't like him? I think he's. I think he's okay. Um, like just like the whole plot and everything. 
yeah, I actually I, I like it conceptually. Like, I think it was like, I mean, it's very obvious that they're going after Rupert Murdoch in this movie. Everybody yeah. knows that. And it's been talked about for 25 years now yes. since it came out. But I think it's one of those things where it's like, and we'll get to another movie later that literally took a real life event and made a Bond villain out of it. Um, but this movie feels like something that I could definitely see happening, especially with someone as rich and as powerful as the character that Jonathan Price plays, Elliot Carver, in yep. this. I can totally see it happening. In that sense, it's plausible for me. I like how much Jonathan Price is hamming it up because he knows how ridiculous some of these billionaires can be. Um, I That whole part of it works for me. Uh, there's some stuff that, that doesn't work as much. I think... Um, Terry Hatcher's uh, Paris Carver, yeah. his wife, is, isn't given enough to do, and then they kill her off kind of unceremoniously. It's just another in a long line of, like, Bond girl deaths that doesn't really propel Bond in any way. There's only a few that ever really actually propel Bond as a character, and this was not one of them. Um, but I think Michelle Yao is, is a good enough Bond girl. Again, it's not an age thing this time, but I don't feel a sexual connection between she and Bond in this one, even though they ultimately uh, do, like, make out and everything at the end. Um, but I think they have a good dynamic. Um, I just enjoy this one from start to finish. Like it's it's nothing too special, but it's just like I said, a breezy watch to me. Yeah, and like I said, I don't di- I don't like really dislike this movie, but it's not one that stands out. Like the next two uh, Brosnan movies stand out to me in bad ways more than this one stands out in good ways. You know, like this one yeah. is just kind of middle of the road, and. Like, yeah, I can watch it, but I, I was disappointed after GoldenEye, basically, after I watched, after watching GoldenEye and going from that to this one, I was definitely a little bit more disappointed than I, if this was like the first time I saw Pierce Brosnan's Bond, I think I would be a little bit more um, happy with it. Like, I, I would be a little bit more forgiving, but uh, yeah. because I saw what they could do with him in GoldenEye and what they kind of set up, I, I think it just kind of falls a little flat. Yeah, it's frustrating to me, and I guess spoilers for these next two movies, that each each movie with Brosnan regressed a little bit to me, or, or sometimes a lot, but they got worse each each entry, even though I, I do like this next one that we're going to get to a decent amount as well. Um, it's just, it sucks that that's kind of how it happened, because he started off so strong, and I feel like because he, because the movies trailed off, he's not remembered as fondly as he could or should be. Yeah. Um, I think, I think that's unfortunate, um, but we can get on to the next one, which is 1999, The World Is Not Enough. Which the first time I watched, I didn't think it was particularly good. I thought it was pretty dull. Um, this time around, it clicked for me. I don't know what it was. I I, I gave this a, a three out of five. It's not mm-hmm. great or anything, but it's just it kind of worked for me for whatever reason. This one I just I kind of associate with visually looking kind of dull because they're in I don't even remember where they are like location wise, but it's very drab a lot of this movie. And it has to do with like pipelines and everything like that. Like in my head, it's not visually very appealing, but I guess I think that was a lot of why I didn't like this movie for the longest time. Um, but it just worked for me this, this time, this yeah. time around. I don't, you can, you can get into it if you want. Oh, I was just saying, I, I'm, I'm not a fan of this movie. I, this one, cause so I think the next one, there's more to talk about in like a, like if you've seen Chris Stuckman things at all, like a hilariosity type thing yeah. where it's just funny and ridiculous, but you know, you can, you can laugh at it. This one, mm-hmm. I, I find the stuff that doesn't work more just, just disinterests me or just, I like, I, it just pulls me out of the movie. Um, yeah. like, you know, even just casting like Denise Richard, Richard, Denise Richards in the movie is, is really bad. Um, as a nuclear physicist. As a nu- yeah. Nuclear physicist. You don't I mean, buy that? You know, that, that's not, that's not a new criticism, obviously, but it's, no. it, it definitely takes me out of it seeing her. Um, although I do love, uh, I do love Bond's in a really the final ridiculous line. way, his final line with her. Uh-huh. Um, 
Yeah. But <laughs> if you know it, you know it. I'm not going to say yeah, it here. Well, I was going to say, I'll leave it up to you if you actually want to say it on the podcast, but it's, uh, nope, nope, I'm good. Yep. We'll leave it out. But it's, um, it's just, again, it's, it's more disappointing and which I get. Yeah. And like I said, with these movies, I saw Goldeneye quite a bit after I played the video game. So I always pictured Pierce Brosnan as Bond. And as I watched uh-huh. his movies, I was like, oh, I love Goldeneye. And I was like, yeah, tomorrow never dies. It's okay. Well, what's the next one? And as they progressively got worse, it was like really disappointing to me. Like as a, as younger watching it, it was like, it like hurt me because I'm like, but he's Bond. Like I, I want to uh-huh. like these movies, you know, more than I yeah. did. Um, so when this one was just, you know, had some bad performances or a bad perform casting in it, it was, uh-huh. I, I didn't love again, like even like the whole villain set up in this, uh, um, it just, it just didn't quite work for me in a, in a way that like, you know, I would say tomorrow never dies is passable. And this one just falls below that. Yeah. I, I would, per- I would still put tomorrow never dies above this personally. Um, yeah, I actually, um, one thing I will say, I think the opening sequence of this movie is fantastic. It's interesting because they originally, it was just like a four minute sequence they had. It was Bond in that bank or whatever, and uh, him escaping was going to be the opening sequence. But there's not mm-hmm. much happening in that sequence that's exciting to be like a Bond opening sequence. So they made it an elongated uh, opening sequence, which until No Time to Die, I think was the longest they went before the title song. Yeah. And you get a you get a great boat chase scene. Uh, with Bond in this movie, which looks like Pierce Brosnan legit just driving a boat through the English Channel. It looks yeah, fantastic. It does. I I do like the opening. Yeah, it's actually a pretty yeah, it's opening the opening's scene. great. It like it sets the tone really well, and I like that what happens in the opening is actually the plot of the movie, which a lot of these a lot of the Bond movies just have little one off openings that don't actually tie into the rest of the movie. I like that the inciting incident of the movie happens in this opening sequence, and they just edited it so that the first big action sequence is in the opening rather than after the credits, which I've always enjoyed. It's a better way to start the movie off. And I don't like I, I don't love the song by Garbage. I know Harley in our Discord loves this song. Um, it's fine. It's not it's not my favorite or anything. It's in line with what this movie is to me, pretty much, which is fine. Yeah, I, I like Garbage as a band. Um, this song is not my favorite of theirs, but I do. I generally like it. It's okay. But it's just funny. I was just thinking because this opening scene, they cut to Pierce Brosnan a lot, just getting like absolutely drenched wearing his suit yes. in this. Yeah. And um, I remember thinking like, like that's, that's gotta be just uncomfortable to be, to be drenched in, in what's already probably uncomfortable. Like I don't find suits super comfortable. So it was just funny to me watching it. It's like, just take the jacket off or do something, <laughs> you know? Yeah. Yeah, I love that opening. I think the movie moves along fairly well for the most part. I, I do like, uh, they're nothing too special, but I do like Sophie Marco and Robert Carlyle as the two villains. Again, another great conceptual thing that Robert Carlyle has a bullet lodged in his brain. That means he's uh, mm-hmm. uh, incapable of feeling pain and that it will slowly creep its way all the way into his brain and kill him. That's a great premise that, again, I wish would have been in a bit of a better movie that I think would have been better if it had yeah. focused on him a little bit more I, um, because he ultimately pl- kind of plays second fiddle. Yeah. I do want to bring up John Cleese actually in this movie. Oh yeah. Is, um, uh, we get the final, the final yeah. scene with Desmond, the well in his queue, which wasn't meant to be, but yeah. honestly it's such a perfect send off the way he exits that scene and his final couple lines. Like mm-hmm. I can't imagine that, that cue going out any better way. Yeah. And then you get the, uh, you, what, what's he say? If, if you're cute, does that make you are, line which yeah i you know so it works i like that like there's some stuff in this movie i do like and i think that was a good way to send off q for sure 
and uh, we'll, we'll get to uh, die another day in a second but my maybe my favorite like straight up favorite scene is john cleese's one full q scene in die another day yeah i wish we could have gotten a little more with him uh but this was a good introduction for him interesting that they cast john cleese because his type of humor isn't necessarily the type of humor that they in, inject that character with in this movie in the world is not enough they go a little too silly with what they do with him in this movie and i think they correct it better in die another day yeah but yeah, this was an, an interesting introduction as far as that goes. And the movie as a whole, I like it a decent amount. Um, I think it's like number 11 or 12 for me, which I think is more of an indictment on kind of how middle of the road a lot of these movies ultimately are to me. But yeah, I, I, I liked this one a bit more this time around, which I appreciated. I think a lot of these movies I appreciate a bit more a bit more this time around, which which I'm happy about. Uh, one that I did not appreciate more this time around mm-hmm. um, is the next movie, the fourth and final Pierce Brosnan movie, which was 2002's Die Another Day which I'll start with the song because that got this movie off on oh the on a very wrong foot for me. It's I terrible. Hate, I hate the Madonna song die another day. I hate it so much. I, it's brutal. I hate this song. It's, like it, <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Not much to say other than it just, it sets the movie off on a bad foot right away. And, and her scene, her scene in the movie. Yeah. yeah she's in this movie for like a full scene and it's and not it's, good. The entire scene is just innuendos. Yep. The entire thing. And it's like something about it. It's like his t- like a tip, you know, that whole thing. It's like it's it's. Yeah. Yeah. It's like, oh, we have Madonna and she's a sex symbol. So we're going to wink at the audience mm-hmm. and, and have this whole scene with it. And it's just it's it's awful. Yeah. And I know I talked with Elena on the last episode about this movie fairly extensively, so I'm not going to go over everything. Okay. I sounded more positive. I sounded more positive last week than I ultimately am about this movie, just because I think this is a great movie to shit on with people if you're in the right exactly. environment. There's a lot of ridiculous stuff in this movie. I've talked about it. A North Korean villain uh, getting DNA replacement therapy to become a white person. Uh, it's just it's just insane. Like everything about this movie feels like a Bond formula on its last legs. And you can really tell. And it sucks that this is what Pierce Brosnan went out with. Um, I've, again, you, the theme of the last movies being the worst for the Bond actors. Um, mm-hmm. I wish he could have ended on a stronger note. There's some good, there's some stuff I like in this movie, like the scene with Q I do enjoy. I like the I like the reveal or, or lack thereof of the invisible Aston Martin. Um, yeah. I think that's I think that's a funny moment. Um, obviously, how it ultimately ends up being used in that ridiculous uh, a, it, yeah. ice, ice palace sequence is just like everybody knows how bad that is. You've seen the you've seen oh, the clips, yeah. you've seen the screenshots. It's just yeah, like most so much about this movie just doesn't work and it feels tired and desperate, um, but it's fun to make fun of. Yeah, and and they waste Halle Berry. This was in a time where I think they wasted Halle Berry in a lot of kind of mm-hmm. roles like that. I mean, obviously this, and then a little later Catwoman, and and even in X Men, like in a lot of her actiony things, where we've seen now in John Wick that she can do it, and they just really didn't give her anything to do other than you have to look hot, basically. That, yeah, that is, that's her character. And then also, oh, uh, uh, Rosamund Pike. Shows yes, up in this she's movie. in this movie, and, and another person like Benicio del Toro. I don't think of going that far back when their movie yeah. appearances. But she shows up, and she she's like, I don't. What is she dressed as there? Like, why in that scene with Halle Berry, that fight scene? I, oh I don't, God! Oh yeah, yeah like, I don't even remember what it is, but it's so she weird. Has, I think she has size and and uh, like you know little sword size, and she has, and like it's like <laughs> a, a Electra or something. Like it's it's crazy. Yeah, uh, I, I'm honestly more taken by Toby Stevens's appearance in in, uh, in that final fight scene on the plane with his weird mech suit that he has. <laughs> yeah. uh, just 
just there's so much about this movie like when i was doing my big tweet thread through these movies i took i took a lot of pictures on my screen and uh i had a lot from this movie because it's just so much like oh, yeah. there's so much stuff that even with context makes no sense and it's ridiculous but again like i said fun to shit on yep and that's why i think i think a lot of people have heard more about this movie than a lot of other bond movies is because it is just funny you know it's it's, it's a lot more fun to talk about this than a movie that's just okay Okay, we're going to stop right there and pick back up next week with part two of our Bond discussion. Next week in part two, Bobby and I are going to go through all five Daniel Craig movies, including an in-depth spoiler review of No Time to Die. I want to thank you all for listening. Go ahead and follow us on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, and subscribe to our YouTube channel. You can follow me at Reeves underscore 117 on Twitter, Instagram, and Letterboxd. You can follow Manny on Twitter at Star Wars Nerd 9. And lastly, subscribe to Bobcat Music on YouTube or follow Bobby at Link Skywalker 14 on Twitter. Thank you all again for listening, and we'll see you next week for part two. 